Recorded live. And welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It's episode 267 of the podcast. It's our Game of Thrones read, or reread for some of us. It is our eighth week, and this week we're covering the chapters Catelyn 5, Sansa 2, Eddard 7, and Tyrion 4. My name is Matt Murdock, and I am from PodcastWinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can also find contact links if you have any feedback regarding any of these chapters or the podcast itself. You can also find podcatcher links. And if you could take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or on Stitcher or really on whatever podcatcher you use, I would very much appreciate it. I am able to check the iTunes and the Stitcher uh, reviews easier than some of the other ones. But I would appreciate a review anywhere because it helps me stay more noticeable and uh, also, you know, it just boosts my ego a little bit. Even when you hate me, it boosts my ego because I know that you listen to me just a little bit. Um, do want to remind you that I am planning to still continue to have sporadic theory casts. I know I've been promising another Grand Northern Conspiracy podcast, like, you know, since what, July or something like that. Uh, but we will have we will have uh, some theory casts just as soon as I can work it out on my schedule. January and February are very busy for me, so it's really hard for me to figure out when we can get together. Uh, the group of us that have been doing those can get together to record them. But I am still planning on it. Um, and once we finish this Game of Thrones uh, read, then the podcast will go dark during the television series because we want you to be able to concentrate on that. Speaking of which. I do hope that if some of you uh, out there that are listening, if you say, well, I only watched the TV show, that maybe you've gotten into these books, and, and we're not that far ahead of you. You could catch up pretty easily, especially with all of the hiatus that we've had so far. Um, we're doing this podcast of, of Read the Game of Thrones to encourage people who have only watched the television show thus far to start reading the books. Um, and not because we think that the books are better or whatever. We just uh, feel like that they help fill out the universe. Um, just like if you sometimes will read novelizations of movies like The Force Awakens or whatever, you'll get little extra insights into uh, what's going on in the film. And I, I think that that's um, a wonderful experience to be had for TV viewers. Uh, and because of that, when we talk about these chapters each week, in our main section of the podcast, we will only include information that has been covered in the television show, but through season five. So you have to have been able to, you have to have seen the television show all the way through season five, which I don't even qualify for that. But uh, my panelists, the rest of my panelists do. And so uh, they, they can continue to uh, inform you about things that go along in regards to how it relates to the television series but we'll leave information that is book only or is different in the books from the television show, like on a vast sense, on a plot-changing sense, to a special spoiler section after the end music. So you are perfectly safe to sit here and listen to our discussion of these chapters and know that it, we're not going to spoil anything for you um, TV-wise. Um, and let's face it, um, it's not going to be long now when season six comes up that you all are going to be spoiling us book-only people <laughs> uh, quite a bit. So, uh, and, and that's okay. That's okay. We've been doing it to you for, for what, five years now, so it's your turn. Um, but at the same time, uh, we do want you to enjoy these podcasts, and hopefully you'll learn to appreciate George R. R. Martin's words just as much as you've appreciated 
uh, Dave and Dan's rendition of the show. With all of that out of the way, uh, that long speech, I do want to introduce our guests for this evening. Last week, we ganged up on her. It was a bunch of guys all circling around Kelly and, and not being very friendly. Well, we were friendly to her. Who are we kidding? We're always friendly to Kelly because she's always so great. But uh, you could, might have gotten the impression that we were ganging up on her. Uh, so it's her turn to turn the tables, and we'll start with Kelly and welcome you back. How are you? You're so funny. No, it's really fun. I'm, I grew up with boys. I'm used to being surrounded by dudes. It's fun. Um, no, uh, I, I do appreciate, though, to have another girl here today. <laughs> I, I, you can hear her giggles. You, you know I love her. <laughs> <laughs> right on. And that is the other person. I'm the lone male this time around, and I'll be surrounded by a couple of really smart people like Kelly and like Stephanie. Welcome back, Stephanie. It's been a while since we heard from you. It has been, and I'm so glad to be here, and I love Kelly, too, so we're going to team up on you, Matt. Be prepared. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, I've, I've, I've got all of, my, uh, all of my boxing gear on. I, I think I'm covered from head to toe. I'm ready to take the beating. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just picturing, that... like, a ferocious kitten attack. Like, this really doesn't yeah, seem scary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, be prepared. No, it's, it's only a ferocious kitten attack when the boys are attacking you, Kelly, because you take it so well. <laughs> but when, when, when you guys come on, I, I'm, I'm scared for my life here. No, I'm really not. But <laughs> thank, thanks for, uh, again, thanks to both of you. And, Stephanie, we didn't get a chance to, just real quickly, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to you last week, naturally. You weren't here. Um, and I haven't heard from anybody outside of, really, the panelists and, and a few people who have written into the podcast about how they feel about the George R. R. Martin announcement that uh, Winds of Winter is still a ways away. Well, you know, I'm not really surprised. I wanted it to come out, like what, Kelly, you said around your birthday or before season six, but I'm kind of on your side, Matt, with letting the artist take his own time and he wants to tell the story and you can't really rush that. I'm I'm more worried about if the book is going to spoil the sh- or the show is going to spoil the book, but they've taken such divergent paths. I'm 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 excited to see what the show is going to do, but I'm also way excited to see what George is finally going to write. But I wasn't really expecting it, so it's disappointing that he confirmed our suspicions. But what are you going to do? <laughs> But what are you going to do? Well, there's not much that we can do. You can either choose to watch the show or not. And uh, I would encourage people, you know, I, I am not, I have my own reasons for not watching the television show, but I try not to push that on anybody else. If you enjoy the television show, uh, even if you're a book reader, I wouldn't worry too much about being spoiled. Um, don't you want to find out what happens? I mean, that's the way, that's the way yeah. I am sitting here waiting for the book. I'm like, I want to know what happens next. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm I'm kind of in the boat of uh, uh, I've managed to to cheat myself um, out of some reveals, probably. But that's okay. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take Um, it, too. Yeah. Let's go ahead and and get to talking about these chapters. We'll start with Catlin 5. Here's your quick summary. Catelyn and Sir Roderick travel north and stop at the end of the crossroads as, as of yet unnoticed. Once there, she debates about whether to turn to the Riverlands and her father 
or to the Vale and her sister, but settles on returning to Winterfell, Winterfell until fate intervenes. Tyrion Lannister comes to the inn and recognizes her at dinner, forcing her to call on men loyal to her father to seize Tyrion so that he might stand trial for the assassination attempt on her son Bran. Uh, I'd give that a dun-dun-dun, but we've already seen this before in the television show, naturally. Um, let's start with you, Stephanie, since you're uh, back and uh, the, the junior member of the podcast at the moment. Uh, definitely, I don't know about age-wise, but uh, definitely in terms of uh, logging in the hours on it. So go ahead. What have you got on Catlin 5? Oh, Catlin. I've stated on the record before that sometimes her chapters just make me feel down. Um, But I did, as you stated, we've seen this in the show, and I thought it was portrayed really well in the show, um, insofar as the the in at the crossroads scene and her, you know, calling on the bannermen and saying, oh, do you know my father? Yes. Oh, we're friends. And then her you know, declaring that Tyrion tried to kill her son and then they all take out their swords, you know, to try to get him. So I thought that was very well done in the show. Um, But Catelyn, I don't know. I sometimes think she acts too much on her emotions and makes rash decisions, and I think this is one of those times. (laughs) Yeah, um, I guess to the point where she gets called out by Tyrion, um, she feels backed into a corner at that point. I don't know if I would have gone quite to the extreme that she did. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, she does now have this other piece of evidence about the dagger, or so she thinks. So um, as circumstantial as that evidence is, um, I, I would think that even a prosecutor might uh, uh, reel in a, a, a potential, you know, suspect Uh, at least for further questioning. So I kind of took it as like that. Um, On the other hand, there's a part of Catelyn remembering things from her past that that made me not like Catelyn so much. Um, Not that I ever root for Littlefinger or anything, but come on, those sisters were just flat mean to him, making him eat mud pies till he was sick. I give Littlefinger more credit than that. I feel like he knew that he was eating mud and they were all playing along with it. Like they <laughs> weren't making him do it. Right. Oh, he was doing it just because Catelyn was going here, eat this. And he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah That's yeah. how I thought. Littlefinger was just trying to impress Catelyn. So he would eat all the mud in the world. Oh, yeah. but that's not on Catelyn. Littlefinger has autonomy. He's a, he's an individual. He makes own decisions. <laughs> but he's getting pressured from both sisters on that one. Evidently. Yeah, probably. I could see me doing it with my little brother. We weren't very nice. <laughs> Here's the thing that you can draw from that, and that is that uh, anybody silly enough to do that, uh, I may have tried half a mud pie once just on a dare, but uh, it's obvious here that if he just kept doing it, that, that he at least thought he was in love with Catelyn at that point, right? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, very good. Uh, Kelly, what do you got? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely got that this is one of those chapters that is very contentious and definitely cited for all of the um, Catelyn hate club. They they really kind of blame her for starting the War of the Five 
Kings here. And in a way she kind of does, but it's a lot more, it's easier to point this out because it's the first um, overt kind of public chain, you know, publicly, you know, um, done event in this chain of events that leads up to the War of the Five Kings, but so many things have happened behind the scenes that lead to it that I feel like it's really unfair to put it all in Catelyn. She really left it until she didn't have any other choice. She was even kind of exploring these other options of things that she wanted to do, like, and I would say that maybe these are the emotional sides of her saying, I want to go and warn my father, I want to go and, like, I'm curious and I want to go and get answers from my sister, but her duty is to go to, back to Winterfell, and that's what she's set on doing until Tyrion comes in, and even then she doesn't jump up and seize the moment. She waits until he he reveals her identity, and she has no other choice but to either let him go or arrest him like she does. And I feel like the arresting him was probably the bolder course of action, but in that moment, her family has been the victim up until then. It's not like... Um, without much evidence, but, you know, her suspicions are pretty confirmed, and she's just seizing an opportunity to get the upper hand for the first time in this conflict, and that action, I always feel like, is more understandable than inaction, which I would always seem as a little bit more cowardice, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And uh, here's another thing, and Stephanie, I'll turn to you about this. If Catelyn sees Tyrion this far south, then she has to assume that he's either headed back to Casterly Rock, he's headed to the west, um, through the Riverlands to Casterly Rock, or he's headed south to, to, to King's Landing, further down the King's Road. So do you think that Catelyn maybe uh, does this because she thinks she may not get an opportunity to, even if she does have more evidence, to get a hold of Tyrion? I'm, I think that's probably right, especially if she was heading back all the way up to Winterfell, which is where she was going. She was trying to decide whether she should go see her dad or her sister, but ultimately, like, her plan was to go north, and if Tyrion was going south, I mean, you're right, when when would she have the opportunity to ever, to ever seize him or even see him again? Yeah, yeah, agreed. So she probably... Agreed. Like I think Kelly was saying, what else could she have done? She was kind of backed into a corner, but I still think she acted like rashly. But at that point, once he pointed her out, she was kind of like, okay, I guess it's all or nothing now. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, and, I, and it was rash. I mean, it, it, it absolutely was a, a, a rash and, and bold uh, move. Um, and, you know, you can look at the ramifications of that and you can say, well, this is all Catelyn's fault. Um, but I, I'm not really a subscriber to that. I think it, it's the, the culmination of a lot of events, right. including what's happening in uh, the King's Landing chapters in, in this particular uh, read. Um, I, I think that um, there's more than just this assassination that is, is trying to hurl these two houses of Lannister and Stark uh, to meet head on. Yeah, and I think her action, you can look at some of some things that she did kind of cause directly because of this, which was Jamie reacting and attacking Ned, and then also mm-hmm. Tywin um, raising the Rivalins. And so that those two things were pretty much directly because of her kidnapping Tyrion. Mm-hmm. 
And those things, I just want to give you due attention to the arguments that people make when they blame Catlin for the war, the war here. But um, but other than those things, it feels like the the war was inevitable. Like they was yeah. already heading in this direction. So I agree. Um, she just kind of knocked the domino that set it all in motion. I feel like it wasn't every you know not it wasn't all her fault. She just kind of got the ball rolling. <laughs> yeah, and you can look at it positively or negatively. If she was Negatively, you could say she she instigated it um, into you know maybe ahead of schedule or something like that. But you could also say she chose to set it off by taking the, you know the first move out of and doing it publicly as opposed to the Lannister way, which is always kind of sneaky. And she chose to do it honorably with all of these witnesses and stating her intentions, even though she did kind of lie. So maybe not super honorably. <laughs> well, but yes, yeah, so. Um, but that's kind of, I think, the, the summary of, of that action. There's a lot more in here. I don't know if you guys want to talk about it. Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. <laughs> what do you got, Kelly? Um, well, I, I just like the the setting of this um, environment that George kind of does that we I always kind of take for granted. I, I don't know if you guys have ever, like, watched a movie from, like, the early 90s, and you're like, this could never happen, like, mistaken identity kind of movies. You're like, with Facebook and computers and internet like there's no way somebody could mistake somebody's identity like but right he establishes it even before you know with jason malister not recognizing her um and nobody at the end recognizing her uh he does kind of subtly reinforce this i getting us into this environment a little bit and i and i appreciated that and um i don't know if you can read more into it that way this wasn't as obvious but just the idea of like how difficult it is to travel in this world like Catelyn hasn't been to this inn since she was a child, and maybe that's common, or maybe it's, you know she's a lady now, so she has to stop at inns or something. But it seemed kind of like this was a rarity for her to be um, traveling, and that's kind of normal for people who live so far and far away from even your neighbor. Kind of put me more into the the world of this, the, these characters. Sure. What? Yes. What's one of the deterring factors of her not? going to see her father was she said, oh, it's too dangerous for just a lady and one, you know, guard to go traveling that way alone. That and uh, well, she comes to the conclusion that uh, she doesn't want to put extra stress on her dad because he's already bedridden, right? Okay. Which, of course, we know uh, later on uh, in uh, what is it, the beginning of season three, uh, he has passed away. Uh, so, uh, it feels like um, George has a either dislike or he gets a kick out of uh, making fun of singers. Like I can only <laughs> think of like a couple singers that he actually portrays with any amount of um, respectability. And Merlin here is just this perfect character that he he characterizes into this kind of bratty, attention-seeking like self-centered artist. Um, did anybody else just instantly dislike him? Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, I absolutely, totally. Um, he is, he is a pretentious rock star. That's, you know, that's, that's what we, you know, we may, we may enjoy their music, but how many of them have you met that you actually like? I guess I haven't met it. I don't, I'm not in the, the, the um, music world. Maybe you could shed some light on this for us. Is this pretty normal? Is he like just taking, you know, modern artists and putting them back into this time age? And it's, 
I think to be any any kind of performing artist, you have to have a certain amount of ego. Um, it's the only thing that keeps you going because you're going to fail a lot. Um, so uh, once guys start to make it, uh, they don't know how to let up on that ego. I think I, I think that happens. I think that happens more often than you think. Now, not your typical like side musician, you know, whatever. I'm talking about your diva stars, but. It, it it appears to me that since Marillion is trying to make a name for himself, then he's going to talk himself up. <laughs> yeah, plus he was 18, I guess. So maybe. Well, he's, he's like straight up lied. I don't know. He was pretty... Oh, about um, when she says, oh, have you played for my father? And he's like, oh, yeah. And the young Lord Tully is like my, my brother. And she's just like, no. My brother hates... <laughs> my brother hates any singers. <laughs> Yeah, like, not only are you lying, but you clearly don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and of course she doesn't say that, but... <laughs> right. no, and that is something I really appreciated about Catelyn in this chapter. She was really demure and humble, and I could not picture, like, Cersei or Sansa pulling off this um, little charade she's pulling off here. And I, I appreciated her a little bit more for that, like, staying at an inn, keeping her head down. It showed intelligence and patience and... Um, Restraint. <laughs> I also find it, you know, especially looking back on this in a reread, where you're you're in Catelyn's head and you 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 read her thinking to herself that this must not come to war, you know. Um, and while you can say what her actions did or didn't do, um, it's the inevitability that war does come that that makes it extremely ironic and, and kind of sad for me in terms of of Catelyn. I, I feel bad for the fact that she. She really wants this not to come to war, and yet it does. Yeah, this happens with he does this. George does this really, really well with the characters. Um, in one of the other chapters we read um, this week, um, Ned thinks stuff like that. Like he, these characters will play out how they want it to go down, or how they foresee things turning out all right. And you, you think, oh, okay, I'm going to read that for the next couple chapters. Great, I'm on board. <laughs> And then it doesn't, like, by the next chapter, that entire plan has gone awry, and there's no way that could have ever happened, and you realize that it was all wishes. And it's heartbreaking. It's really tragic. It is. It is. It's very realistic. Like, we all think we'll win the Powerball, right? Like, <laughs> you know, my 20 bucks, I, I'm sorry that you guys lost tonight, because my 20 bucks <laughs> won it. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Stephanie, let's go back to you. Uh, any other points about this chapter? Not really. Like I've said before, um, like Catelyn, I usually don't have that much to say on her, which I'm, I am I apologize, but she's just not, I don't like being in her head. We could maybe talk about the singer a little bit um, in the spoiler section, but I don't have any other notes in regards to the chapter. Uh, how about you, Kelly? I we'll have to talk about it for very long, but it is something I spent way too much time on. It was the travel time and how they ended up meeting <laughs> at, uh, at the inn at the same time. It makes no sense. <laughs> like, Tyrion um, left the wall a day after um, John got the letter from Winterfell. Catelyn left King's Landing before Ned got the letter from Winterfell, this both being the letter that Bran has woken up. Catelyn is about... Um, there's a fabulous spreadsheet that has a lot of uh, uh, time, travel, and distance estimations on it. And so the end of the crossroads is about 500 miles north of King's Landing. 
and at a slow pace. It would take her like 31 days if she left when um, when the conditions were or average or even if they were bad. Like you can just up the days, up the days. It doesn't matter <laughs> because Tyrion left uh, the wall and it taken good conditions at a fast pace. It would still take them like 80 days or 40 days at a fast pace, 80 days at an average pace to get there. Like it makes no sense. <laughs> and she specifically actually says in the chapter that they left a fortnight ago. Yeah, that's true. That's true. She does say a fortnight. So maybe she's lying. Maybe they... Um, they lost left track the, of time. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it took her a really long time to get horses. Like, this was my, like, internal rationalization. <laughs> because I want I want what exists, like, what is on page to make sense. I don't care if it's, like, I don't want to write George and tell him he's wrong. Like, that makes no sense. So I'm, like, going to rationalize and say, this is what's, you know, on page. So how do you make this sense in your own head? And that's they took a couple of days to get horses and provisions because they came here on a ship, so they don't have all that stuff. And then, I don't know, Tyrion went really fast with Yorin, and they didn't have to yeah. stop very often. It, see, it, from a television show perspective, you can solve this completely. Tyrion found a transporter at the wall, brought it with him, uh, and once he got to King's Landing, then Littlefinger started using it in season two. I was just going to say, uh-huh. Littlefinger's good time traveler, so someone had to get it from him. <laughs> That's tying way better. <laughs> <laughs> even, right. even trying to make it make sense, I, I, I was left disappointed. and um, I feel like I'm missing something by not being able to figure out the time. And, and I know it's a fruitless effort because this is not a perfect piece. You know, This is all in a fictional world, so it's a little bit... <laughs> OCD to be trying to put it all in line, but um, it's a fun game if you like numbers, and I do. So right hopefully, hopefully someone else out there enjoys that. And if anybody wants the spreadsheet, um, send me a message on Twitter. It's really uh, helpful for time frames and distance and travel and all this stuff. So. Where did, Where did you get this? Did you create this yourself? No, no, it's uh, from the forums, the Westeros at Work Wow, this fandom. I would have never taken the time to do that. I just accept things way too easily, I guess. I don't know. It's beautiful because it's like a whole group project, and they have, like, you know, columns that show where the information was gotten for how they came up with the estimates and stuff. So it's so satisfying if you're a you know, numbers nerd. Wow. All right. Well, hey, kudos to, to people who are putting in that kind of time and effort. I certainly appreciate it. Um, as long as somebody else, uh, as long as somebody else is doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, anything else on Catlin, guys? No. All right, let's move on to Sansa too. And in this chapter, Sansa attends the tourney of the hand of the king with her friend Jane Poole, uh, who gets sick and leaves. She gets a flower from Loras Tyrell and then attends a feast where Joffrey wines and dines her. After a fight between Robert and Cersei ends the feast, Joffrey sends Sansa back to her quarters with the Hound, where she hears how he got his scars. There, there's so many names mentioned in, the, in this hand of the or this uh, tourney of the hand that um, it's it's almost mind-boggling because of how many of these names that you see later, even in the television show. You've got the Mountain, you've got the Hound. Um, You've got Sir Beric Dondarrion. You've got Thoros of Nier. And I thought it was really interesting, uh, just in reading this, that Thoros and Beric ended up having to, to go against each other in the list 
uh, and the Thoros beats Don Darien and then ends up, you know, of course, saving his life later on by uh, praying to the Red God and and bringing them back. Um, that that was that was really interesting that this little bit was in there. Um, I don't know how much Beric Dondarrion and Thoros know each other before they're sent off uh, by Ned to go after the mountain, um, but I, I thought it was great that at least here they can respect each other's skills from the very beginning. It is really funny, and how much I always wonder how much they were put in here and then pulled from later, or how much he had a plan for them and then planted them back here. Very satisfying. Like I looked up a that's lot the, of. That's the perpetual question with George. Did he plan this all ahead, or is it just convenient that they can meet up later? Is that good at building? He knows he'll use them all later, and he knows that it'll be. Well, I'll even I'll even take it a step further, guys. Uh, essentially, as far as as Barrack's run goes, I mean, I don't know the the rules of jousting or or anything, but um, since his horse got killed. Uh, but he's given the win because of that. That's how he ends up even meeting for it, uh, Thoros. So he kind of gets his own resurrection in the tournament. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it just to, to stretch it to an ex- extreme fanaticism, there you go. Uh, there's a foreshadowing. George meant to foreshadow that way. No. Um, but, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I just found that it, this time around that kind of hit me a little bit. I'm just kind of like, wait a minute. This horse dies, but he's still in the tournament. Yeah. So many horses. <laughs> what have you got for us, Kelly? I kind of like um, Stephanie with Catlin. I'm not a big fan of Sansa, uh, but I did find a lot of um, things to respect her for, I think, in this chapter. If you look for stuff, if you look to like, hate characters, I feel like that's really easy. If you look to find something valuable out of them, that's a little bit more of a struggle, but there's usually something there. And in Sansa's chapter... I really like her psychology and her shift in this idealism to more realism, and but not complete. And it doesn't even, it kind of even starts with her looking through this fine sheer fabric, literally coloring her world. Like her worldview is through this yellow filter. And by the end of it, like Sandor's holding this torch up and making her stare at this reality of his face. And it's the two bookends that kind of show where maybe her character arc is going to go because even still by the end when he says that to her she says she kind of keeps this idealism and says well Gregor was no true knight still holding on to this belief that there is such a thing and I kind of I really respect that about her that she can still hold on to this it doesn't seem naive when she's being forced to look at it like this it seems like she's intentionally believing in good and I actually like that about her Wow, that is so good, Kelly. I love that. I love that. That's great. Stephanie, uh, how about you? What have you got for this chapter? That is good. And I, I love this Sansa chapter. Um, like Kelly said, she wasn't really naive when she was, went after the hound, you know, told, him, told her about his face. But then on the other hand, I feel like during the feast, when she was sitting with Joffrey, she was just like a typical, you know, young, naive girl saying, oh, you know, Joffrey wasn't responsible for killing my wolf. Like, it was Arya's fault and Cersei. And, uh, but he, look, he's being so nice and so proper. And then, you know, he says, oh, do you need an escort home? And, you know, she thinks he's going to do it. But then he sends the hound with her. And I just think, like, 
her just her going from you know a typical naive girl and then being so mature and understanding after um, the hound tells her his tragic life story. I think that's just. I think it's a great characterization of Sansa, and I think I I, I personally love Sansa chapters, but I feel like a lot of people don't give her enough credit. And I think this is one of her, even though it's only her second chapter, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I found Sansa to be very observant in this chapter with that, uh, with that realization about Littlefinger's eyes. I thought that that was great. Where he had gray, green eyes that did not smile when his mouth did like the mark of a liar. I mean, that whole... well, took, I, was, I wanted to ask, yeah, really quick, specifically, you think that that's um, a deception, or do you think that that, because I've heard some people where they thought that it was more sadness when he was looking at her. Ah, I think I, it's a I, deception. I think it's a deception, too, just from everything that we know about Littlefinger. I think, I think it's a purposeful deception, almost. Like he's going through the motions of trying to appear charming, but it's not quite complete. It's not there in his eyes. Yeah, she can tell. Okay. Well, and I think when he, you know, when he's playing with her hair and he just walks away. I mean, I often call uh, Jorah Mormont a perv, but this is like super pervy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and it almost seems manipulative to me. Maybe it, it seems strange to me that this was his first moment of seeing her. Or maybe he just never saw her up close. Like, they've been in King's Landing a while, and this is the Han's daughter. You would think that Littlefinger would have even made a point to come by and introduce himself, and this being the first time is very, I don't know, it seems very strange to me, and it seems like it affected him. And if I saw it through a different lens of somebody who is maybe Littlefinger sympathetic, there's maybe something about his true love that he has for Cat that really affected him when he saw Sansa, who was like this reincarnation of Cat from when she was a little girl, when he had that childhood yeah. adoration for her. Were the girls around when Littlefinger came to visit Ned and pointed out all of the spies? I don't think so. I don't they think weren't? so. They were both okay. deceptive. Okay. Just was wondering that. Because um, you would have thought he would take the opportunity there. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I, oh, okay. I just was wondering. No, I was. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't looking for. Ask the best questions, and I want to find the answer. Because that was exactly what I was wondering. I was like, "How has he not seen her before?" And this being, that's a good point. He was actually in Ned's chamber, and they lived there. Right. <laughs> hmm. uh, I. I, I mean, because it is, I'm pretty sure that's Ned's POV, so the only way that we would know that the girls were even there was if he talked to them prior to Littlefinger arriving. Yeah, I think he just might have, maybe the, I think from another chapter, it sounds like the door to the Tower of the Hand is right to the outside and maybe doesn't have to go through the household area. That would be my guess. Okay. So, it's a, just his behavior also made it seem like this was the first time he had seen her. Um, okay. And if you did kind of want to be sympathetic towards him, you could see that this would trigger something in him. And the way he leaves abruptly is 
him showing weakness almost like he couldn't be charming. He, he says these things yeah. to be that are just coming to him. And, you know, I think he says, your mother was once my queen of love and beauty. And that's so jarringly, I don't know, um, vulnerable of little finger to say. And yeah. Well, he's playing with her hair. Come on. It's pervy. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely inappropriate, <laughs> but you know, we, we've seen Sansa even in this chapter. She straight up tells Sandor that he's scaring her and tells her to stop, or tells him to stop. So he kind of, you know, we can kind of maybe see that he wasn't doing anything inappropriate. Like if it, if she didn't feel in, compelled to say it's inappropriate, yeah. you know, she, she she'll be the kind to stand up and say that's a little too forward, sir. Well, <laughs> oh, let me let me really go down the devil's advocate side here. Is, is Sansa leading Littlefinger on? Because the only reason she tells Sandor to stop is because she doesn't want to look at his ugly face. <laughs> but but the dead eyes of Littlefinger are too much, are so charming. <laughs> well, she has been kind of going on about, she knew they were looking at her and smiling, and she kind of has this, I am the rose of the tourney. Like, I'm the, the hand, this is the hand's tourney, and I am the hand's eldest daughter and I am beautiful and everybody tells me so and I'm betrothed to the prince. This is my fairy tale. She kind of has that self picture of her, self image of herself that she's maybe playing into well, by allowing him to kind of indulge his fantasy and looking at her. It's a very typical that, girl thing. I'll be very yeah. honest about that. <laughs> okay. well, as long I, as it's not like infringing on your personal comfort zones, like it's actually like really gratifying for her to like have somebody be so like enamored with her, but um, even if she doesn't return it, she's just kind of basking in it. And she's thirteen, isn't she? Something like that. So, I think it's, maybe she also yeah. doesn't know how to handle it. <laughs> so how? Well, Kelly, I mean, you you've talked about how some people interpret it one way or another, but how do you interpret it? With with um with little hindsight? fingers. Yeah. Being able to have hindsight, I, I think he's manipulating. Okay. Uh, but we still don't have the full story yet, so it could turn out that it, it just does seem with some of the things that happen book only that it seems like he's not as sympathetic. <laughs> well, and I would say even, I mean, if you want to go to the TV show, uh, the breaking point for me was the fact that Littlefinger left her at Winterfell. Oh, that's a good point, too. Yeah, definitely that. It definitely seems a little a little careless. So uh, I don't know. What else do we get on this chapter, guys? This is a great discussion. Let's go. I love I love it. And hopefully Ken from Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things is listening because uh, with what uh, what Kelly's been saying, she kind of reminds me of Ken with all of these little tie-togethers and stuff. But uh, I, I he troll his website. He hasn't posted in a while, but I do read his stuff. It's really, yeah. really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ken, Ken, Ken is awesome. Ken is awesome. And Sansa is his favorite character. So... Uh, hopefully he's enjoying this discussion if he's listening. Uh, Ken, we love you, brother. And uh, Stephanie, anything from you on this chapter else? Well, do you want to talk about um, the feast where Robert gets drunk and, you know, kind of foreshadows about he wants to fight in the tournament? And, you know, that obviously continues into the next chapter. Um, should we talk about Robert? <laughs> sure. Let's talk about Robert. I, now, my obviously this goes 
into Eddard's chapter, so we won't talk about it until there. But does he really think that he's going to fight in this tournament? And obvious, and he's very drunk. And then he starts yelling at Cersei, and nobody wants to, you know, stand up to the king except Jamie. But like, what is Robert thinking? We know he's not the smartest guy, but. Well, you know, uh, since we have all read these chapters, I, I would say it's just safe to say this is just Robert showing his bullheadedness again, right? <laughs> I mean, even Ned says, I think, in the later chapter that, you know, if you tell him to not do it, then of course he's going to do it. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just uh, the way Robert Baratheon is. Um, but this is something that I have to say for Bubba from the Joffrey podcast also, <laughs> as long as we're talking about the feast. We, ha- we have to throw in this line because... As Bubba will testify, this is probably the only line of truth in the absolute whole chapter. Uh, well, for Bubba, anyway. Where, he, where it says, she could not hate Joffrey tonight. He was too beautiful to hate. <laughs> oh, God. All right. There you go, Bubba. I threw, I threw in your two cents. Bubba couldn't be with us tonight. He's got other commitments. But we love him. Joffrey Podcast. Give it a listen. All right. Plug over. Uh what else about Robert, Stephanie? What else were you going to say? Just, you know, well, and like I said, it continues into the next chapter. It's almost like he is like a bullheaded guy, but is he that in denial that he really thinks that people are going to, like, fight the king to the death? Like, I know that's how he won the war with his war hammer and, you know, killing Rhaegar at the Trident, and that's all he's about. He's more about fighting and women and booze and everything and not actually using his brain, but I don't know. It just seems I, I, he makes me laugh. Like, I know he's not supposed to, but he, he makes me laugh with his ridiculousness. Right <laughs> on. Unfitness to be a king. <laughs> <laughs> he's a general, you know? He's not a king. He's, he's a fighter. Kind of not literally, a jack. Literally un, unfit. He needs a breastplate oh. stretcher. Ha, ha, ha. We're going to touch on that later. You yeah. bet you. <laughs> No, I, I, I was wondering the same thing, like, um, that means you were saying that, the, the curiosity of where did this plot start from? Like, was it one of Cersei's plans to goad him into what? joining, and or was it someone else who suggested it? And Cersei was, like, started, yeah, that's, you know, thought that, yeah, yeah I thought, was it, was it his idea? And she goaded him into it and then was like, well, you know. If he wants to do this, then uh, we'll make it happen tomorrow. Like, she was just kind of, like, this opportunistic about it. We don't that's, really know, yeah, do we? That's one of my notes for the next chapter when they were, you know, getting into more detail about Robert wanting to fight. I was thinking, is this a plot, like, kind of a first assassination attempt almost? You know, trying to get him to go out there and fight because they knew, you know, he'd be so stubborn he would go out there and do whatever he wanted anyway. So, but I had the I had the same thought that it might be more than just a just an innocent ideal that he wants to go out and fight. It could be like a more sinister, like Cersei planted a seed in his head to go do it. Yeah, after these bunch of chapters, like I start wondering, like who's manipulating whom? Because there's a mm-hmm. lot of it seems like seeds being planted by one character pointed out by that character to another character. And then this third party character is observing all of this and gets their own conclusions and now have a whole different agenda that they're going to try to do, you know, manipulate that another character with it. And there's, it's so like once or twice removed from the initial 
manipulation that it's so hard to track and follow. And it's yeah. really satisfying to pick it apart and unravel it. And this is one that I don't think we have a lot of evidence for, for who. And so I guess that makes me feel like there's, it's probably nothing more than Cersei's heavy handed <laughs> attempt to, yeah. you know, um, kind of have Robert shoot himself in the foot, <laughs> really, like using his own, his own stubbornness and pride against him would be really, it seems like a Cersei style um, plot. So it, it does feel like that's probably all it is here until we get more evidence, if there is any, if anybody spots any or knows of any. But at this point, it seems like it was just something she, she came up with. But um, did you guys, okay, so Joffrey is being really, really pleasant to Sansa until this happens. Do you guys right. think he's, whose side do you think he took in that? He, do you think he was mad at Cersei for upsetting Robert, or do you think he was mad at Robert for yelling at Cersei and shoving Jamie? I, I, just from what we know, I feel like he's, you know, he wants to impress his father, but I think he usually just takes the side of his mother. But that's just me throwing that out there. I don't really have any, you know, textual no, evidence. Yeah, there's not much. So whatever you feel is legitimate, you think, Matt. <laughs> well, I, and it's funny because I'm kind of working the show into this, but isn't it Cersei who convinces Joffrey that he has to be nicer to Sansa? Is it this kind of an amalgamation of the, of that, e- even though I think the locket comes in later or, or whatever. I'm not even sure if that comes in in the book. Now everything's all mixed up for me. But yeah, that seems definitely not in the book. <laughs> okay, um, but the 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 whole idea of, of Cersei encouraging Joffrey to be nice to Sansa um, to me is proof that that Joffrey, at least Dave and Dan have interpreted that Joffrey almost always leans towards Mom until she becomes too controlling of him. And I think the evidence we have for that is his clothes. He constantly wears Lannister lions. Yes. And that's the only thing I can really grasp onto solidly in saying that that's what was kind of turned his attitude at the end there was the um, disrespect shown to his mom and uh, uncle. So. Yeah, there's a line in there where he says he, he was talking to her, but he was looking past her or something like that. He had a look mm-hmm. on his face that she couldn't read, something like that. Yeah, and it seemed like he de- his mood definitely changed. And I was wondering, like, you know, what is his what is his alignment? And he always wears Lannister's clothes, so I thought that was pretty obvious. Maybe that would be what bothered him. But, you know, then we know about the um, his, his want to impress his dad. So I don't know. Yeah, we and after we read these chapters, we all know how well that's worked out so far. I know. Oh yeah. <laughs> how well that's going for him? Yeah. Excuse me. Um, uh, I want to I want to get to the Sansa uh, the Hound thing before we wrap this chapter up because I I feel like this is really great because a, a lot of the story that the Hound tells Sansa was actually delivered by Littlefinger himself in the television show, right? Except for the part about the toy, if I recall right. I'm not even sure. Maybe Littlefinger mentioned the toy. But having the Hound bleed his heart out uh, in the book here is fantastic. Um, And I think it informs Sansa even cheering for the Hound, you know, in the next chapter. Um, But uh, having him actually bleed his heart out this early in the television show would have defeated the peril that he represents in the television show. Um, you can do it in a book, 
because you're looking at the story through all of these individual characters. But on a whole, the viewers are getting the outside on a television show. So it's not until season four where you see Sandor himself actually really break down about this thing that Gregor did to him um, with Arya instead of with Santa, which I thought was fantastic, the way the showrunners decided to, to treat this part of the Hound's story. Yeah, I think there was a deleted scene about that when he was, when Gregor, oh, I'm sorry, when Sandor was walking Sansa back to her room. I don't remember what it contained, but it, that might have had, I think it was intentionally deleted because it, it felt out of place for his attachment to her so early. I think they intentionally, yeah, like you said, delayed that and because it would have confused audiences to how is he this badass, but then also, you know, talking to this little girl about his fifis, you know, right. <laughs> and not consistent in, in terms of like um, that medium, it, things have right. to be a little simpler. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think they, they gave it to um, little finger just to give him more interaction with Santa. But yeah, having him say it to her, why, do you guys have a, a, any idea why he opened up to her in that moment? Uh, I think he, he, you know, from what you gather from these chapters of, of, of The Hound is that he does have this code um, because when he fights, well, we'll talk about it, but when he fights with Gregor later on, um, he makes sure not to swing in his head because Gregor doesn't have his helmet on, right? So he has this code for himself, um, be it not always a good code, but he does have a code. And I, I feel like that he felt very belittled by the fact that Sansa was more or less shying away from him the whole time. And he was just, I think it angered him to the point where he wanted to confront it, but then he had to confront the notion himself. Uh, and maybe it had been a while since he'd done that. It was, it was as traumatic for him as it was for her. I agree. I think, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, well, and he, you know, he, this is where we, you know, get another calling her little bird and that she just repeats what's told to her and she's so nice and proper. And I think in a weird way, you know, he wanted to tell her like the harsh reality, like, look, this is what happened to my face. My brother did it. And then guess what? Now he's a knight, and everybody calls him sir. Like so, just because he's a knight doesn't mean that he's that great. I think it was kind of maybe to. You don't want to say like. Like take her innocence, but kind of just maybe open her up to like that. Not everything is so beautiful in the world and nice and great. And I mean, she's only thirteen, but. I don't know. That's yeah, an interesting character, and this is—I just, I don't know—I just I love the way this this played out in the book. Yeah, I think you're you're kind of like half overlapping with kind of where I was thinking it was coming from. Like he's been in King's Landing for so long, and you know, with the Lannisters of all people, so he's actually probably not very used to people sincerely being polite the way Sansa is sincerely. Exactly repeating these things that she's been trained to say and it probably comes across as really false to him. And so when he realizes that she's maybe what she's actually saying, you know, like she's not lying. Like she actually says that she struggles to express herself without lying because she wants to say something nice about how Galant, uh, his, uh, the, um, the mountain was without talking about how terrifying he was. (laughs) 
she she actually didn't, I think she realizes that she's trying to be kind of PC and not actually you know uh, maybe making making mock of him or anything like that. He he just realizes that she may be more uh, I don't want to say like clueless than the other people who are being false, but he, I think he kind of sees that she's also engaged to Joffrey and he's kind of aware of his dark side. So he may actually relate to her in that she's going to be stuck for life with this person who she has no idea is this monster. And that kind of sounds like his life as when he was a kid and maybe prepare her a little bit or show That's her that. That's a really great parallel. I've never thought of that. That's really great, Kelly. Um, let me ask you guys this real quick. Do either of you ship the Hound and Sansa? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Do you think this is the point where people might have shipped Sansa yeah, and the Hound? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think this is this is where this is where it all begins uh, for those who still ship Sansa and the Hound, even though the Hound's dead. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Yes. The hound is dead uh, until he comes back somewhere. I was listening to um, the Close the Door and Come Here podcast, but they talk about the Sand Sand fanfic a little bit. It's really, really funny. Um, and I really respect that, too, because it is just, people age them up to make it make sense. So if anybody's never heard of this, it's it's not always this pedophilic relationship. So don't think it's too creepy if people say that they ship it. It's Usually in the fanfic, it's aged up or something, you know, an, alter, an alternative universe or something. <laughs> I did not <laughs> even know that that existed. Oh, <laughs> I did the fan fanfic, but I didn't. I, I I didn't know there was a whole like world of it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit of a thing. Yeah, and that's not what the podcast is about. They were just talking about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I I will not be checking that episode out, unfortunately. <laughs> But uh, I will check out the podcast, so other episodes of the podcast. That should be yeah. fun. Yeah, there there's a bunch of girls who are all on Tumblr. They're really, really cool. If you like listening to <laughs> me, I'm a girl, or Stephanie, she's a girl, if you guys didn't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, many uh, guys my age don't even know how to spell Tumblr in order to bring up the website, so that's tough. That's fair. That's fair. But it's a podcast, so you don't have to spell Tumblr to look up the podcast. <laughs> that is true. That is true. It's just when they start giving their URL, their Tumblr URLs, I won't know how to find them. That's uh, um, that. <laughs> what else do we have on this chapter, guys? I think I've said all of my piece on Sansa. I, there's a couple things. There was... Um, Santa specifically says that she hates Cersei for what happened to Lady. Not you know, Cersei and Arya. It's their fault, not Joffrey's. So that's an interesting point because we know a little bit later she, that changes, and she. It makes me wonder about Santa's coping mechanisms that she uses. Like I said, I, I try to focus on her psychology a little bit more because thirteen-year-old um, <laughs> girl otherwise not really interesting. <laughs> but no, her 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 coping mechanism is that she's with Joffrey and she wants to have this position, if not necessarily with this guy, and she has to rationalize why it's not his fault and why she can still be with him. And I think transposing that hatred onto Cersei or someone else, even Arya, who's always going to be her sister no matter 
you know, how much they fight. So that's kind of an easy transition. It's, I think that's something to keep an eye on because I think she changes that later. And I just don't know what causes the change, if it's just time or circumstances and she needs Cersei, but it's just very odd. Uh, it, that's true. That's true. I, I think it's just because, you know, uh, she's she's so overwhelmed by the beauty of, of the greatest king that ever lived, King Joffrey. The future, the once and future king, then. <laughs> once and always? <laughs> once and for a very brief, short period. <laughs> uh, and then, this is fun. I want to talk about this because this definitely isn't in the show. So what do you guys think of Moon Boy? Cool. Simple. <laughs> Undercover, undercover spy. It's really only the one illusion that he's so uh, he's so good with the with the the coming back with the back I guess the comebacks or or the the snide remarks that she decides that he's not a fool. Um, But can you take Sansa's word for it? Is it just does she think that he's not a fool because (laughs) she wouldn't have thought of it herself? You know. Ouch. We were doing so good with the fans of love this episode. <laughs> She's not smart enough to get fooled jokes. <laughs> okay. I didn't, now, see, this is what happens. I'm getting words put in my mouth. I'm just saying that she's not, uh, she doesn't realize that anybody could have come up with that. It's, it is his job, to be fair. Like, that's what he does all day. So it makes sense that he's really good at it. But He I goes know. home and writes down little jokes. <laughs> going to practice this jape. On Sir Marin Tran. I'm going to practice this jape on King Robert Baratheon. <laughs> oh, I've got a zinger. I'll save this for breakfast. Yeah, that's probably what it is. <laughs> Moon boy. Always no, plenty. But it's a good question. Um, especially, uh, I, I think we probably ought to talk about that in the spoiler section, though. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right, because it's not in the show. Okay. Yeah. I hear for you. all we know. I think that's my only other note. All right. Well, then why don't we move on, guys, to the next chapter, which is uh, Eddard 7. Here's your quick summary. Ned has to talk Robert out of being in the melee, then watches the jousting with Sansa, where Sir Loras unhorses the mountain. Oh, where after Sir Loras unhorses the mountain, the Hound must come to the defense of the young Tyrell, and the Hound is then awarded the championship of the Joust. After that, Ned speaks with Arya about her training, then receives a revealing secret visit from Varys. Dun, dun, dun. That one actually deserves one. Um, wow. Uh, I uh, I guess I'll start with you, Stephanie. Go ahead. What, what do you have? Because you 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 let off the last chapter uh, so well. Uh, well, first of all, I, I have to say the king is too fat for his armor. That's one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, he, he needs he, he needs a he needs a breast plate stretcher for sure. <laughs> he also wants to hit someone. Mm, he just wants to hit and and. Fornicate and drink, drink and drink, meat and ferment. Yeah, he wants to yeah. fight and fornicate. That's all he wants to do. A man must be allowed some vices, Matt. <laughs> That's all he is is vices. It's so funny. He's just testosterone. That's all he is. <laughs> really is. Uh, 
what else do we got, guys? Go ahead. Well, we already talked a lot last chapter about how Robert wanted to fight and why does he want to fight? Is this some, you know, sinister setup by somebody else, you know, jabbing him that he wants to fight? Um, so I think we've covered that, but what else do we want to do? Well, the other conspiracy we haven't talked about too much is the uh, Hugh, Sir Hugh of the Vale was yes. suspiciously dead. <laughs> he was bedded by the mountain. Uh, and in the last chapter, uh, the Hound did say that, that that was intentional. It would not have been a mistake. But he says it to Sansa. So, of course, Sansa's not going to think to tell you know, her dad about that because it doesn't seem important. But... Um, I guess to her, <laughs> but uh, he still Ned still kind of finds out anyway, and they think of and the conspiracy behind that is a little iffy to me. It's again like that pipes out like why is he giving up so much information and who benefits from this and where did he get the money and who would have given it to him just so he would die the next day? It's very confusing. Do you guys have a theory? Uh, I don't think he intended to die. I mean, whoever gave him the money for the new armor and stuff, they probably wanted to make sure he got into the joust, so he had enough money to get into the tourney, to get the armor, so that he could joust. Yeah, but what's the chances of him jousting the mountain in the draw? Well, his little finger set up the bracket pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) That's an excellent point. That is a very excellent point. Um, yeah. So, first of all, do you really think that Hugh had anything to do with it? Barris uh, pretty much says as much by the end of the chapter, right? He he says that, that Hugh was... Yeah, but I, I question Barry's motives. For sure. For in all sure. of this as well. Um, so, I, I, I don't know. I've never trusted a word that Barry says. Even though you know half of it turns out to be true, um, yeah, uh, this whole this whole it, it's colored by the conversation that he has with Illyrio and the dungeons that Arya overhears. True, true. Varys is always one that I trust most of what he says for some reason. I don't know why, but but what do you? Okay, so if you don't think he was, you don't, you think it was a complete uh, accident and just to demonstrate that the mountain was a threat or maybe to throw George was throwing everybody into this conspiracy possibility that doesn't exist. Well, uh, I, I know that it's pointed out that the mountain saw that, that the gorge wasn't, wasn't fastened correctly and acted accordingly. But otherwise, if it had been fastened correctly, uh, it wouldn't have done anything other than unhorse the guy. That's true. I don't think the mountain went down the list uh, thinking that he was going to kill Sir Hugh. I just don't believe that. Okay. I think it was convenient so that it saw... covered up that it covered up a truth that Ned might have discovered that Hugh wasn't involved or was involved. Either way you want to look at it, it, it was it was a but not arranged but, by anybody besides George. Right. And that the or the mountain just saw the opportunity to you know stab him through the neck or whatever, and it wasn't. Yeah, oh, that's a lifefully straightforward, Matt. <laughs> I'm totally 
totally, I'm totally thinking that there's like four conspiracies wrapped up in this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm a conspiracy theorist. I I I love that there's conspiracy theories out there. I'm just uh, uh, I somebody has to play devil's advocate on this podcast once in a while. I dig that. No, you're the guy. Why can't an identity be an identity? I like that. You're you're saying why couldn't it have just been as it was and. Why's it got to be a conspiracy? Because it's there. Are, there's not enough evidence to say that it was, but there's definitely signs. So there's no evidence to say that it wasn't either, though. I mean, yeah, that's right. what I'm saying. I don't blame the conspiracy theorists for thinking so. Yeah, and especially for all kind of as paranoid as Ned's starting to be in this chapter, in these past couple chapters, that you know you'll start seeing people waiting outside your your window, looking at your window when they're really just doing yard work. And you'll start thinking that somebody's following you down the alley when they're just trying to go to work. You know, it's it's not even... No, no, give Ned a break. He's not nearly as paranoid as everybody else. He even smiles in this chapter, for crying out loud. He does. So sweet. Maybe I think Littlefinger's getting in his head. Like, Littlefinger's kind of started to tell him, you know, you can't Mm -hmm. trust anyone here, and everyone's out to get everyone, and Ned's starting to see within plots that maybe there aren't. But here I definitely, I, I don't know, I thought that there was Littlefinger let, told, arranged for it so that Sir Hugh could stay in King's Landing so that he could give him to Ned as a interview this guy. And then Ned would trust Littlefinger and whether or not Hugh had any actual information to give, we don't know. He might have, as Barris has been the one close enough to uh, John Aaron, that he was the one poisoning him, or he could have totally been just uh, uh, an innocent bystander. Yeah, a member of the household who uh, Littlefinger did the background check on him and figured he'd be the perfect candidate. He's got one family member who's still in the veil, not going to miss him or call up arms. So, <laughs> me? Here's the thing that doesn't make sense to me. Um, it appears to me that anybody who's involved in this is really trying to point this whole thing uh, towards the Lannisters, right? I mean, that's kind of the initial... We know that, that Littlefinger, even from the television show, that Littlefinger told Lysa to write the letter. Um, we, we know that he gave her the poison, the Tears of Lease that we find out that it's called. Um, so the thing is, why point blame towards someone who's in the household. Why why would Littlefinger bother to even point Sir Hugh out to Ned? So what it seems like is that where the the path that Littlefinger was hoping Ned's mind would take would be that and it almost seems like Varys is involved because at the end he pretty much spells it out exactly how it did happen, how, explaining how the Lannisters using a whole different example of the conspiracy where they were going to have Robert killed in the melee, mm-hmm. they would say if they had a, a cat's paw, they would stage the accident, feign grief, the Lannisters would forgive them, or and that's how it would be presented, and then let's say they actually go through with it, and then they say, oh, remember how I said we were going to give you a pardon? Well, now we're just going to kill you because we want to keep you quiet. And that's the most assured way to make that happen. Well, that's exactly what kind of happened with Sir Hugh. And if you look at it backwards and say, well, um, the mountain is one of the Lannisters' uh, bannermen, and he cleaned up this loose end. If this whole theory is true, he cleaned up the loose end. That was Sir Hugh, who suddenly got paid off and is staying in King's Landing, perhaps with new friends, after his whole household went back to the Vale. 
Oh, Sir Hugh is a patsy. Yeah. So whether that's true or not, that's how it was set up to look. Yeah. Uh, I can agree with that, except for the fact that I don't believe that any of this actually happened. I think that Varys <laughs> is lying about everything in that point. Um, now, I want to talk about Varys for a minute. He says uh, when Ned uh, uh, questions how he got in with the disguise and everything, he says the Red Keep has ways known only to ghosts and spiders. And that's a great allusion to all of these secret passageways that Varys, even in uh, Season 2, um, shows Tyrion that he has maps to and improves in season four uh, that he has a way for Tyrion uh, or that uh, Jamie has a way for, for Tyrion to get out. Um, so we know about these secret passageways and we can suspect that that's what Varys is using to get in and out. Um, and the other thing, you know, uh, that stuck out to me was Varys calling Thoros of Mir and his flaming sword absurd. And we know from the television show because of his aversion about what happened to him, to his manhood uh, at the hands of uh, a magician, why he's so anti-magic and why the Thoros of Mir and characters like that he finds absurd and scary. Um, the whole association with the Red God. Um, then, here, here's the thing that I, I wonder about uh, is that we know that varies based on his meeting with Illyrio in that, that Arya overhears in season one, that varies is trying to sow the seeds of discourse because it's Illyrio who says, no, we're not ready yet. Right. Yeah. I said, it's not time. Right. We need time. The time is not right because, and, and we can't really talk about why the time is not right because of book spoilers, but um, nonetheless, that is said. So that happens after this. And I'm saying that Varys is introducing this whole plot to kill Robert by the Lannisters to further fuel that fire to butt heads between the Starks and the Lannisters to start the Civil War. The very seeds of discourse that he's trying, that he's promising Illyrio he's created. That's very confusing. Because it seems like he's helping Ned to prevent that. But, 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 but at the same time, he says, who are you going to tell? When are you going to tell him? You know, he, he kind of, he presents Ned with the information to gain Ned's trust. But then he almost tries to talk him out of doing anything about it. Yeah, he's really funny about it, too. <laughs> like, save us some time. Send for Sir Illin right now. Yeah. He'll not, he'll chop our heads <laughs> off. Quippy. Yeah, maybe he's kind of doing the exact, playing the same game. It seems redundant, though, if he has the same, um, I don't know, goals as Littlefinger. Well, I, I think the whole idea is that if you make the realm as it is weaker, it's easier to overtake. For Littlefinger, it's to overtake it for himself. For Varys, it's over to, to help Illyrio, blah, blah, blah. We can't talk about it on a television show podcast. <laughs> Right. Okay, but they still kind of want the same, maybe not end, but they kind of want the same means. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both yeah. looking for the same means to get to, <laughs> to get to their own personal agendas. End. Yeah. In the show, it seems like there's a, a bit more of a stretch between their their desires. Like Littlefinger specifically says he wants chaos, 
And I think we have a line somewhere, whether it's book or show, I don't remember that. If Lord uh, Littlefinger would burn the city to be Lord of the Ashes. Like, it Bar- seemed like Bar- he wants, Barry says yeah. that, that. Yes. So it seems like he wants, you know, at least Vera seems to think that Littlefinger just has a want to be important of something. It doesn't have to be, you know. But Vera seems to want, like, a structured, well-functioning realm, right? He wants everything well, he does to Ned. He wants everything he does to the realm. The, we've learned from the show that he wants a Targaryen back on the throne. Right. Yeah. And he says, and he and he'd want that because he thinks it'd be good for the realm. He says everything he does, he does for the realm. And so I think that there's the means that may not even be exactly the same either. Well, but, yeah, I'm just saying that he thinks that any Lannister sitting on the throne is not good for the realm. And they're both using Ned without his knowledge. And they're both using, <laughs> well, uh, I think Varys is is much more oriented towards actual chaos than than Littlefinger's is. At, at this point. Now, in the show, uh, chaos is, is Littlefinger's thing because he sees it, Littlefinger is, is much more opportunistic. Um, but I, I don't think that you, see, you can see them as all that different. I think they both realize that they need a little chaos in order to create uh, an avenue for them to get to their end goals. Yeah, everyone in power is too strong when the structure is still fortified, I guess. And not right. Because... Up. We even see Littlefinger, I mean, Littlefinger really does it. He, he tries to sow seeds of discord between Marjorie and Rinley when he's visiting Rinley, when he's visiting Rinley's place, right? When he's bringing back the bone, when he's trying to meet up with Catelyn. Yeah, I don't remember it verbatim. Well, he talks to Marjorie about, you know, the question of Rinley's uh, uh, homosex- homosexuality in that. Oh, yeah, and how can he be? Yeah. yeah. Um, We've, I've read this book so many times that I've seen the show. I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that there would be just the answer. Like, here is the answer in bold letters, but never no. with George. Never with George. But see, I, I just totally took the whole different opinion. And I, I think that as far as you're concerned, if you w- want to uh, say that, that Varys is honestly helping Ned, that's great. Um, it's just that I don't believe what Varys said. Yeah, I think that up until the point that I remember what his goal is, you know, I feel like he does try to, and maybe all, everything Varys is doing um, is to counteract what Littlefinger is doing in order to extend the time that he needs before he's ready. And maybe that's where we're both right. <laughs> maybe he is being honest with Ned <laughs> just because he needs a little bit more time and he's not ready for the Lancers and Starks to go to war yet. Possibly. Possibly. We can agree in the end. We can be friends. <laughs> what else have we got on this chapter? Oh, we, uh, we heard about Anguy. Yeah, I heard a couple. Yeah, another... another uh, Brotherhood Without Banners guy who... I, I don't know, did they call him Anguy in the show? Um, they definitely had an archer in the show in season three. And I'm assuming he was supposed to be the facsimile of Anguy. Whether they actually called him that or not, I don't remember. I don't remember, you're right. I think there was. I think he was um, in the show. Yeah, it says he was played by a character. Okay. Played by Philip McGinley. So, yeah, I think he's definitely in there. <laughs> so he's specific to the show. Yeah, he's the one who shoots an arrow. Up in the air, Hot yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they dropped it. Hot yeah. Oh, Hot um, 
Yeah, he won the archery contest uh, competition, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and but he also re- won it against Jalabar Zoe and Balin Swan. And I just kind of wonder, well, something came with Angai um, winning that. <laughs> he now was renowned archer with the Brothers of Banners. Um, absolutely nothing has ever become of Jalabar Zoe. I don't know what this character's point in life is, but <laughs> he's there. And maybe that'll be something that'll come up with his character later. Uh, or Balin Swan, we know. Um, I think that's a book spoiler for later. Yep. What happens with him. But his, we do know that he's, right now, we know he's a, one of the King's Guards, and he is really good at archery, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I found it interesting that he refused. What Didn't Ned try to bring him into service? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and he and he refused. Um, so uh, reminds me of Merlin right there. So is he one of the guys then that goes out with Beric Dondarrion to chase after the mountain? I don't recall. I mean, he wouldn't have been in season one because not even Beric Dondarrion was really in season one. It was a guy standing there that said, "Yes, I'll go" or something like that. But um, because he was recast in season three, of course. Um, <laughs> But I, I'm just trying to remember book-wise. It's not like a book spoiler to, to try and figure out how Angai and, and Beric Dondarrion ended up together in the Brotherhood Without Banders. I, I'm assuming he went with them. Yeah, it's not specifically said. Like, his name is not called, but Ned does just say, like, bring a number. Like, Beric, you grab a number. You know, these men bring a number. I'll send you a number of my guys. So he could have just been amongst that nameless number. Um, yeah. He's not specifically mentioned, but he does end up with them. So it's likely yeah. that he wrote out because he did spend all of his money. <laughs> so <he's> like, <laughs> as as Merlion, you know. So I hate reminded of Merlion, I think. Says, I want to spend my, you know, my yeah. winnings on girls and food. <laughs> nice. Food and fornication. <laughs> yep. Spices. <laughs> oh. Uh, what else we got on this chapter, guys? I mean, I know I went off on that whole big thing about Barry. Sorry about that. No, that was interesting. No, I, I appreciate that. Because um, I, yeah, he's a big question mark. Um, we have got a lot with Robert, and I was kind of annoyed with him. You don't really like his character with, when he's drunk, and you're like, oh, you're the king, bro. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but then you can see when he's with Ned, his his boyish side comes out, and, you know, he, he can laugh really easily, and he's actually kind of tragic when he opens up to Ned about how he doesn't know how he could have made a son like Joffrey and how he wants to run away from the responsibilities. But Joffrey, the idea of Joffrey being king keeps him on the throne. I know. That's a great foreshadowing of how awful King Joffrey is going to be. Sorry, Bubba. But yeah. Sorry, Bubba. But, you know, it's, it's, it's his judgment gone. Even uh, Ned stands up for him, though. He stands up for Joffrey and says, he's just a boy. Remember how wild we were when we were young? And he kind of puts it into perspective for Robert. But I don't know. You would think Robert would, I mean, there's some things that he knows, I guess, that Ned doesn't about Joffrey. So just like, you, those are the moments that you're like, I hope that's not the full extent of their conversation. Like, I know guys don't get, like, super deep and, and chatty with each other the way girls do, but, like, I'm hoping that wasn't, like, the most that they've talked since he's been in King's Landing, you know? Ah. He would have opened up to Ned about his troubles a little bit. Uh, I, I don't or know. Bring his troubles away and ignore them. 
Yeah, that that seems to be more Robert's style. It's like uh, he can when when he's when he's hammered, he can still live the fantasy life of of just fighting with people and and um, accidentally betting a whore. You know, he's in super denial. Yeah, as long as he can stay distracted, he doesn't have to deal with mm-hmm. his problems. All he has to do is be able to show up and be able to seat himself on that throne. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't doesn't even do that half the time. Yeah. I like that he's actually kind of um, one of the same, has the same characteristic as Sansa, and these are two characters you don't see together very often, so it's kind of cool. Um, this romanticizing of people, and he romanticizes Lyanna, saying, you know, she oh, wouldn't have shamed me the way Cersei did. Ah. Ned, of course, awesome Ned calls him out on it and says, dude, come on, be realistic. She was a woman, not an idea. She was, you know, <laughs> you didn't know her, you didn't know the steel like I did, and I like that about that Ned kind of did like a reality check on Robert, even though he's the king. He's still he's not above getting reality checked. Right. Yeah. I, well, and that's something that I really uh, through this read have come to respect about Ned is that he he's more than a couple of times has given Robert a reality check when they were riding on their horses on the on the way back uh, or on the way back from Winterfell to King's Landing. Um, that was a conversation where Ned kind of uh, we probably held his tongue a little bit, but he, he still, you know, called Robert out on Robert's stuff. Yeah, and put his foot down yeah. about things he didn't want to talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people say no to the king. Right, exactly. That, that's what I'm saying. And I think that's one of the reasons why Robert loves him so, is because Ned's not afraid to, to tell truth to power. For such a shorter time. Mm-hmm. I think he can see in Ned that he, he's a better ruler than himself. Right. Well, and he even mentioned in this chapter, right, that it should have been John or it should have been uh, Ned. And, and Ned very plainly says you had the better claim, which alludes to Robert's heritage. There are Targaryens in uh, in his bloodline, be them slightly dis- distant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his grandmother. Yeah, yeah I was going to say his grandma. But... Um, you know, that's kind of a, a an interesting reasoning in this world about how we're going to overthrow this guy because uh, we don't like his, his and apparently kill his family. Don't know if that was part of the, the rebellion plan but Tywin Lannister went ahead and did that. So <laughs> now he doesn't have a family and you're the next in line. That, to the family, the, yeah. Yeah, so keeping it still in the, the hierarchy of inheritance of the crown uh, but it just so happens to be one of the re- rebels <laughs> that started <laughs> That it wasn't named after. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. um, Oh, and that came up a little bit uh, in this chapter too, right? That the Lannisters um, commanded, or when they came in and they, uh, what was it, to Rhaegar's family. I have a note, but I don't want to like spoil it in the spoiler section. But the the fact that Rhaegar was the one that that, um, knighted the mountain. Ah, right. And his family was, you know, since he was a knight, he then went to work in the Lannister's uh, household and under Tywin Lannister's orders, he brutalized and murdered Rhaegar's family. Yeah. Yeah, it's a a great, uh, well, not great. It's a horrific, but it's it's an interesting irony, I guess. Yeah, I never thought about the, who had anointed uh, Gregor and 
what he did to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else, guys? <laughs> Some little things like Stephen Mordain was ill today. <laughs> uh, she was ill. To, she was too ill to go to the journey. She, she oh, was yeah. hung over, man. She got drunk. <laughs> Stephen let loose as a feast, man. She oh. got drunker than Robert. Oh, she got wine drunk. That's the worst. <laughs> Yep. She was she was ill today. That's I can't ima- I can't imagine her trying to get any sleep though if if Cereal and Aria are water train or water dancing all day long. I think that yeah, and the show made me feel like they had like a special quarters for it. But oh, and they did mention he talked to um, Aria about would Barristan like would you like Barristan to train you? Did anyone get like? A, well, did you get like a split picture? Split second picture of Barristan training Aria? Oh. <laughs> How adorable. I don't know. I, I no, don't know. not adorable because Arya says, no, I don't want him. I don't want him. She just like hops around from one oh, to no. another. You know. <laughs> yeah. She didn't go for it, but I liked the idea. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm not in that camp. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. It's perfectly fine. I've got to keep remembering that I'm outnumbered here. <laughs> That's right. Check. Give you a reality check. Yeah, exactly. Anything else on Eddard? Um, there's a little bit where Renly, where we, and this kind of ties into the next chapter, where uh, during the Sander Jamie uh, joust, Littlefinger bets on Jamie winning, and Renly bets on Sandor. And so when uh, Sandor wins, Renly says, I wish uh, the imp had been here, because then I would have won twice as much. <laughs> and I guess that's kind of a clue that little that um Tyrion tends to bet on Jamie as a given. Like everybody knows this. Mm-hmm. And that definitely does tie into the next year. Speaking of Winley, uh there's another mention of him and, and Marjorie Tyrell. Yeah, and Robert is kind of responding to it now, isn't he? he kind yeah. of seems like he's a he's interested. Yeah. He's like, Well, if Renly likes her, maybe I should give it a try. That's what he's thinking. And, and that whole plot is still like completely subtle, and there's nothing that has come of that yet. Uh, I, is it shows? And I think they kind of mentioned it in the show that it was the plan was to have um, Marjorie come in and make Robert put Cersei aside, right? Oh, I don't recall that. I don't remember that either. Sorry, edit that out. <laughs> I suck. No sweat. <laughs> no. It's an easy. It's an easy edit. Anything else? Anything else? We want to talk about the mountain. Sure, go for it. Oh, I mean, of course. Okay, so we know that Sir Loris gets a mare that's in heat, which will make the mountain horse, you know, go after her. Um, and so I d- does Loris unhorse um or does the does the mountain horse throw him off? Is that what happened? Well, I, I think it was the fact that the mountain was struggling with his horse so much that it right. gave Loris an opening to to knock him down, right? To knock him down, yeah. And then of course we all know what happens to the mountain's horse. He cuts off its head. 
in front of everybody, and we got the lovely visual on the show. I don't know if anybody can forget that one. Yeah. But it just shows, you know, and we just uh, heard from Sansa about, you know, how horrible the mountain was and, you know, burning um, Sandor's face. And then now, you know, they're watching the tournament, and what does he do? He just cuts his horse's head off. It's like, this guy's a psychopath. And we all know that, but... And there's, like, uh, a huge, like, paragraph. It's, like, one of the longest paragraphs in the book so far where ne- all Ned is doing is thinking about how horrible Gregor is and all of these. He, like, he barely, he, you know, he rarely listens to gossip, but some of this stuff is, like, too dark to ignore. And he's heard about, like, Gregor's past two wives and that and serious circumstances. And his yeah. dogs are afraid to even come into the hall. And he loses servants on a regular basis mysteriously and like so much it sounds I don't know if this was just like put all right here because we're not going to talk about it anymore and we just want this background but like the Gregor uh, the, the Clegane Manor or whatever the household sounds terrified yeah. <laughs> it does sound terrifying but I will say this I think that, that uh, maybe Catelyn has influenced Ned too much because he's drawing too much circumstantial evidence together and drawing a conclusion <laughs> He's just, he's just uh, reflecting on rumors. I don't know if he's making any conclusions unless he, and he's not explicitly thinking them. But he's mm. kind of feeling them out and he's maybe making judgments. Because you know, they're not in the chapter. Like He doesn't make judgments or conclusions in the chapter. In the That's text. true. But you kind of get an idea. <laughs> yeah. He's focusing on all of these negative things. He doesn't think about any of the positive things you hear about Gregor. So perhaps he's- Which are? <laughs> what positive <laughs> things? He's, well, he's well, he's tall. <laughs> he can he can probably see he can probably see over that hill that we can't because he's tall. <laughs> he's he's strong. Super good. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. This this chapter, uh, you know, you look at the two Clegane brothers, and um, I mean, the mount the more the mountain. Part of it being because of Ned's thoughts about the mountain and everything, it sets it up so well to where um, you, like Sansa, um, even though you have no idea, Loras was cheating. Come on, Loras was cheating. But you still root for the Hound to defend Loras because of, of the psychopath, as Stephanie mentioned, that the Hound appears to be, or the mountain appears to be, pardon me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And he, he does the, I think maybe because he was caught, but... Loris does do the commendable thing at the end and just offers up his winnings to Sandor, yeah. 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 See these characters that are pretty good about winning crowd favor and how that plays into later, into what they do. Like, Renly's really good at um, playing to the crowd Mm. and Loris is really good at playing to the crowd and just being a, a crowd pleaser and knowing the power of having people on your side. Right. Yeah, well, and and Loris, I think, represents a great Terrell trait, uh, which we can talk about in terms of the television show, and that's being uh, subtly sneaky. You know, it, yeah. Now, you know, I mean, I, I, from a descriptive standpoint, George had to basically make the horse overreact and everything. But I wonder how many people in the Commons thought about that. Uh, no, yeah, probably not. They probably were all wanted him to win because he's like the hero and. Gregor is like a villain. That beautiful armor that he's got and everything, you know. He, he's uh, he's adored by the commons, so they probably don't even notice that the horse is, is a mare or that the mare is in heat. 
Or, yeah, they even just, if they they're all still so pretty. eat. <laughs> oh, sorry. What did you say? Oh, no. no. <laughs> say that they'll forgive him, you know, as soon as they find out what he did. <laughs> He's kind of setting himself up for getting well, away with it. And, and, yeah, and like you said, he further ingratiates himself by going ahead and, uh, you know, pronouncing the hound the champion, right? True, yeah. I think he, he knows how to, to play to an audience and, and win. Well, and you think about the fact that Terrell's in, uh, during the war, who's the people that bring in the food that everybody needs? You yeah. know, um, it's all it's all a sly game, game to, to gain power. Yeah, it's no less manipulative than the Lannisters, but I think it's less abusive. You know, it's definitely that we're, we are manipulating to get what we want, but it's benefiting everyone. And, it's really hard to find fault in that. True. Very true. Anything else? No. All right. Well, let's move on to our final chapter, Tyrion 4. <laughs> All right. On the road to the Vale, Tyrion recalls the journey so far from the point of his capture to the present. Then when the party is attacked by mountain clans... He fights on the side of his captors and defends Catelyn Stark. All right, I got one note. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta say this. I gotta say this. No phrase helped Catelyn. Good catch. That's totally true. <laughs> and then it Lord even goes so far to say, as Lord Walder Frey was a cautious man who had lived a long, long time by making certain he was always on the winning side. Um, mm-hmm. Very makes it makes it very easy for the that use this line as justification uh, for the red wedding, which was terrible, of course. Oh, totally, and they there's twenty of them. There was twenty of these guys at the uh, the inn when she called on them to come help. Like that was the family with the it was like the group with the most. Like there was like um, there were three Brackens, uh, one um, went one guy from house went and then a bunch of farmhands and a couple of sellswords. Like of all the people that would have been able to withstand or to stand up together, like they, the, the phrase should have been the people to, to join up and go. And no excuse. They could have taken used half the party. I mean, it's not like they even all had to go. It's, oh, even but... better. Even better. Yeah. It was, it was a little, uh, I don't want to say foreshadowing. It was totally just like. <laughs> yeah, well, it just shows you what, what crude people the phrase are. Yeah, you know, right. And, and, and disrespectful they are and how it, easy it is to think that if anybody was going to do something as atrocious as the Red Wedding, it would be these despicable, this yeah. despicable house. Start as a theme. <laughs> oh, but. Yeah, that was just one interesting note to me, is that the people that she called out, the only ones that didn't go were the phrase. Uh And then, yeah, she managed to get uh, a handful of um, like, fodder? I don't know. Klansmen fodder? <laughs> they're not named. <laughs> no, they're so, not. She's, but they said they have a dozen, but there's only six people named? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I didn't count. What does your spreadsheet say again? <laughs> Not spreadsheets, bullet points. Uh, uh, I'm on the wrong document now. 
they um, I did make a spreadsheet for the tournament trying to figure out the brackets, but it was there was not enough information. But the here they they didn't have um, the the names of all twelve. But Tyrion says that about twelve people stirred when he when she called for them because the the chapter begins with uh, him having like a flashback to how he got to where he is from right. where Catelyn left off, which was amazing. I thought that's one of the best uses that. George has used of that kind of, I mean, I'm here now, character POV starts, and then you, you this, last this saw me what's a month ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is what's happened to me since the last time you heard from me. POV character reflects on everything that's happened since you last saw him. Yeah, that, which is great, but it, it definitely kind of feels a little forced sometimes. This was very fluid. Um, but the, of the 12, unless, it, I don't think it's including Catelyn and Tyrion and the two Lannister men that were with him and uh, Roderick. I guess that would make more if it was. But. I only have the sellswords, Bronn and Chiggin, uh, the three Brackens. She she mentioned a trio of Brackens, and that's I don't know, like Kerleket, Kerleket, like K U R L E K E T, Laris yeah. and Moar are the three, and then Willis Wode, which is um, supposedly the last person from House Wind, but there's another. I don't really know how that all works, but. Uh, it was, it was, yeah, there's like a character flaw that George had. So there is another one somewhere married to a to a um Call him out, burn all of the books. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you get that one wrong. No wonder it's taking it? George Silver long to write wind. He can't even remember that he's got two characters in the same house or <laughs> when he says he's got one. He can't remember the sex of a horse. It, it's all over. It's over. I feel, I feel this is like literary it. trash. It's good. It's still good. I just feel like if we're going to look this closely at it and somebody's listening, they're like, I caught that. Why didn't you mention that? I feel badly. So. Uh, okay. Well, good. Prop, props to all of us anal readers out there. Then. Yep. That's me. <laughs> That's what we use, <laughs> I guess. Um, but no, that was why my, my, I wasted my time on was figuring out who was there. Uh, yeah, you've got a point every week that you have to waste time in each chapter that, that you spend way too much time on. I forgot about that. Yeah, You did that last week, too. Kelly, I did enjoy your um, the wall measurements last week, though. I actually really did enjoy that one. Oh, I appreciate that. Anyone else got any, you know, measurements from your town? Figure it out. What's what's 700 feet near you? And let me know. I'll add it to my list. <laughs> we'll put all of them next to each other, and we'll be like, this is like the wall. <laughs> that would be amazing. Imagination, I just saw a YouTube of all of the starships from all the different universes and games together comparing size. We should do something like that for, for Westeros and, and the rest of the world, the real world. Give everyone a reference. It's all coming up in our heads and we're not all that good at you know figuring that stuff out. So. Yeah, right on. Back to this chapter. Let's get here from <laughs> Stephanie. Your thoughts. Now, this is, you know, I don't like animals being killed. And this is what, like the third or fourth horse we see dying right at the beginning? Like, I'm tired of all the horse killing. George had a beef with PETA at this time, evidently. (laughs) But, you know, this is Tyrion's nice horse that he's had that Jamie gave him. And, you know, I know they got, you know, attacked by the clan mountain people. But, you know, it's... It was kind of a downer to start it out that he's watching his uh, the cell sword just like cut up his horse. I mean, hasn't the guy been through enough? 
so adorable. Nice to meet you. Yes, it was the horse <laughs> that Jamie gave them. Eh? That's uh, you both are so adorable. Like, remember Game of Thrones way back, and we're 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 sad about horses dying. This is just <laughs> Game of Thrones time. No, but that's that's like the worst thing that happened in this chapter. I mean, this is. This is but what stuff. was the best thing that happened in this chapter, uh, Marillion? Didn't Tyrion break his hand or his arm? <gasps> I think so. Hey, but well, yeah. he he smashed four of his fingers on his playing yeah. hand by that, stepping that on. A, yeah. Vindictive little imp, and he doesn't take. You like how when he he like is doing like an assessment of Marillion at the end, he doesn't say I broke his four fingers on his right hand. He's like. This happened to him, this happened to him, the fingers on his plain hand were broken. <laughs> yes. Don't know how that could have happened. Uh, even though I heard the scrunch when I yeah. it. And I've been thinking the whole time, I'm going to get you, buddy. I'm going to get you uh, for, call, for, for calling me out. <laughs> for finding, like, I want to write a story about this. <laughs> It's hey, a little vindictive of Tyrion, like, and I try to keep that in mind. Honestly, this whole time, this whole chapter, I was thinking um, Tyrion is, is totally in the right in his defense against Catelyn's exact ac- accusation. However, he knows that she would also probably want to know who pushed Bran out a window, and he's pretty sure he knows who did that. Right. Right. He's not completely innocent here, uh, in spite of the fact that he's exactly innocent of the exact crimes accusing him of. Yeah. And you guys brought up the uh, the, the point about uh, Littlefinger saying that he would have won double from, from Tyrion, and here it is. It's reaffirmed when Tyrion, at the end of the chapter, he says, you know, he never bets against his family. Um and, and, and something that can be hidden in the books, you know, this this kind of argument is, is something that you can hide in the books and you can say, well, do I believe Tyrion or do I not believe Tyrion? As opposed to a TV show, uh, if Tyrion tells Catelyn that Littlefinger's source for how Tyrion got the da- dagger was never against my family line, uh, the the show has not revealed the source of the dagger, though, to my knowledge, um, and may never do so. So, if we actually talk about that point, other than what we just what I just said, um, we'll have to do it in the spoiler section. But I, I love that um, he does have the exact argument um, that is presented to us by the prior chapter uh, at the hand at the tourney of the hand, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, confirms it, and we, as you know, readers can kind of get like this third party confirmation, so we trust what he says a little bit more. It does. Is is this a point where you started trusting more, or was it the stuff with John before that you started liking Tyrion? Or does anybody here still dislike Tyrion? If Bubba was here, he'd say that Tyrion doesn't measure up. I've always liked Tyrion, but you know, to Bubba, he's evil Uncle Tyrion. So. And it doesn't measure up. I try to see him from Bubba's point of view because I think the the when I'm rereading and I'm trying to find a different way to look at it that I had didn't look at it when I first read it because my instinctive reaction is I love Tyrion like he is right. smart and, and, and you know like creative in his escapes because <laughs> he constantly has to escape um, but he is just 
he keeps going and he keeps trying and he, he you can find a lot to commend him for this character and then but it's almost too easy like i kind of want to right like see him from from this point of view of like he's not this angel like he's not this, this well perfect. and i think that's a great point to make and i think that that's something that george tries to do is that Tyrion is by many more means in the books flawed than he oh. ever has he's been very whitewashed in the television show that i've seen to this point um and that's not to say that we we won't continue to see a little bit darker shades of Tyrion, other than the, the killing of his father. Um, that's about the darkest thing that we've ever seen Tyrion do on the show, and that was, um, in many television viewers' eyes, justified, right? Right. And, you know, in the TV show, we don't get the benefit of being inside his head like we do in the book and knowing what he's thinking. True. Very true. And I, I think that George does make it a point to, to make Tyrion a, a, a not a white hat, total white hat guy. And, and I love that. Um, because then it makes it uh, same way with Jamie. Um, Jamie is a character who pushed a kid out a window, you know. Um, but at the same time, um, you tend to warm up to him or at least some of him. Uh, as right. the television show or the books progress. And I think that's kind of how I thought about it some more and we talked about Because I know you keep saying that you don't think Jamie has changed in terms of his, like, behaviors, right? Like, you think he still makes the same decisions and he still has the same behaviors that he had at the beginning, right? Yeah, I, I think that his logic hasn't changed. I think that it's just now he's in a situation where his logic can do more good than it can do bad. Yeah, and like you really talking to you about that really made me kind of like examine it more. And it does seem like the opportunities for the characters to show their other, comp- you know, I don't say components. That sounds weird. <laughs> their other <laughs> facets, <laughs> but to show their other, you know, abilities and their the sides of them that perhaps we're always there. They just didn't get the opportunity to demonstrate them. And that's a different way of maybe saying the same thing, which is what I think I've been saying with Jamie has kind of changed. Maybe he hasn't changed so much as the circumstances have changed and he's gotten to demonstrate right. that. Right. Yeah. He's not just the Kingslayer. <laughs> right. He's not, he's not just the guy who pushed the kid out the window. Or an oathbreaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, or who killed the king. Yeah, or who put it? Yeah, the Kingslayer, exactly. Yeah, and for Tyrion, it's kind of had that unfortunate opposite effect in that he's had more circumstances happen around him that show his bad side as the show went on and the books go on. So, kind of here, we are still kind of in his com- slightly complex, but still mostly a good guy and clever. And isn't he, you know, amusing kind of guy? You've got all the most lines that you laugh at, and I think he's he's kind of still George's focus hero right now in the book. Uh, do you think so? That's kind of how the impression I get. What do you think, Stephanie? In the books now? Yeah, or... I think, yeah, like kind of where we are now, like Tyrion's still kind of George's hero go-to. I think he is. Reader. Because we know that, you know, he didn't, try to assassinate Bran or anything. So we have the benefit of 
like I said, of being in his head and knowing that. So I think from George's point of view, and I think George had said that Tyrion's his favorite character, so I think he's still trying to make him the good guy in insofar as that we have so many other characters with different facets, as you said. And I think that, that Tyrion is um, up to this point in this particular book, George has done very well to kind of cast a lot of doubt in readers' mm-hmm. minds uh, about Tyrion um, so that he can, he can ultimately... Um, and and yet never betray the character and the fact that Tyrion does have a dark side. Tyrion is flawed. Tyrion does... Um, remember, he's making mental notes about who he's going to take revenge on. And this isn't a trend that stops, you know, just because he's declared innocent of of being, uh, you know, being the guy who gave the dagger to an assassin. Uh, right. By his tri- and, and he's cleared by a trial by combat because he's smart. You know, and he realizes that's his best way out because he wasn't going to get a fair trial any other way. He wasn't going to get a fair trial any other way when he was accused of killing King Joffrey. Um, so he has to um, he has to use this the skill of others sometimes to justify who he is. But it never stops him from thinking about I'm going to get you for doing this to me, even though he may yeah. never get that opportunity. He's super vindictive against Catelyn. Oh my gosh! <laughs> He's vindictive against anybody, um, and that is there's one time in the show that that's pointed out, and that's when he's walking with Sansa in the gardens, right? Um, yeah. And, and and he tells Sansa, you know, I'm remembering their names because Lannister always pays his debts or something to that effect. It is alluded to in the show one or two times, but very subtly and almost for the case of humor because then Dave and Dan quickly turn it around to it being about Sansa being naive, you know, about what kind of revenge he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because she's saying, oh, right. let's, put some, let's put some sheep dung in their beds and they won't know where the smell is coming from. You know? <laughs> and, um, but he, he, in the book, it's definitely more, he thinks about it all the time. He's almost got like an Aria obsession with the names of the people because he's, when Catelyn takes him he remembers to take note of all the people who he's going because i think she promises to that help us get to them to winterfell and we will repay you and Tyrion thinks to himself yes let me take note of everybody who's coming because uh the lannisters will also repay you and <laughs> he's keeping note of who's going to be getting um their debt paid off in a different way Absolutely. he's it's very uh like these, are, I don't know. Would you? I wouldn't blame these guys if they kidnapped them. I mean, this Catelyn called them, made them all declare their loyalty, and then if they didn't do what she wanted, they would have been shamed, dishonored. Not very. I don't know. I wouldn't certainly blame didn't, them. It certainly didn't. didn't bother the, it didn't bother the phrase to not uh, be called yeah. You know. Um, and and there are uh, I think it's pointed out that there are a lot of houses a lot of people represented that didn't help now whether they were loyal to Hoster Tully or they were and they were just travelers that could be a thing um, a lot of people are traveling to and from the the uh, the, the turning um, evidently so um, there's a possibility you know that some of these people are from 
well, I wouldn't think they'd be from anywhere except maybe the Vale or the um, the Riverlands um, coming east to west, uh, unless they were from Casterly Rock, at which point you would think that they would have stood up for Tyrion. Yeah. Um, uh, and and the, all, the only other place, I guess, is the north, which we should be loyal to Catelyn. Uh, but you never know. There could be there could be some straight travelers still um, in, in a place that is heavily embedded in the Riverlands. She gets a very small percentage of the people to help her out. But and I just I think Tyrion's his Lannister, his Tywin Lannister side is showing, and his vindictiveness towards them all. And they're just—I mean, they didn't do him any harm. Like if he's innocent, then he just has to prove it, and then, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, but but like I like I just pointed out, there were people that did make the choice not to help, and so he does see this as personal. I suppose. Not convinced, I guess. And it's, and it's not right. I, I, I go with you on that. It's certainly not right. I think even Tyrion would point out that the phrase were being kind of crap for honor when they didn't <laughs> go along. <laughs> I think he would actually kind of call them out on it if they didn't do it. Tyrion just likes calling people out on, on things. And, and, and I think you're absolutely right in that. I don't think that's a good trait. Yeah. Necessarily all the time, you know. Um, so... Anything else on this chapter, guys? Do we want to talk about the the fact that he did end up uh, coming to her aid? Um, for what reason? Uh, other than just to make us like him more? My only thought is that if he's in that, like, warrior trance that he kind of talks about sometimes, it's maybe female in trouble, must protect. Uh, you know, <laughs> he went into primal mode. Ah. Protect it, yeah. Maybe so. There's no other reason for him to be that, like, to even be tr- doing anything besides what Marillion's doing, you know? Like, he's not, he's not a fighter. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Do you think he was trying to prove something, winner to his side? Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I, I as oper- you know, as smart as Tyrion is, um, while it's never smart to go face first into a battle with three guys uh, when you're when you're all of what three feet tall, um, I think that he thinks that they honestly have a chance to win. And and for me personally, it's about maybe she'll actually listen to me if I show her that I'm not going to run. That's a really good take on it. I was just thinking more primal, like fight or flight. You're either going to go hide and run. Or you're gonna keep fighting. Oh, and I think that's perfectly legitimate too. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm trying to save all the Tyrion hate we've had this chapter with a little <laughs> bit of fantasy, you know. Aww. I love Tyrion. I don't want to give that impression. I just try to find a way to balance how much I like. No, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I've been dishing out the Tyrion hate too. I've okay. been talking about how much darker he is than the television show portrays, and and how that's not very likable a lot of times. Yeah, but I think it's more realistic and I can mm-hmm. like it from a, a reader point of view, not necessarily like I like his character. But. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why. He, it, I think it's, I feel like he would that instinctively because of his Tyrion felt a sudden urge to leap up, brandish his axe, and boom out Casterly Rock. <laughs> but the insanity passed quickly and he crouched down lower. <laughs> I feel like he just has that. 
right? Like, I feel like he just has this, like, uh, I need to go fight kind of dude thing going on. All right. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. It's like, okay, what are they going to say about me in the trial if I don't stand up and fight? Yeah, it could have hurt. I think, you know, maybe even his logical brain did, did come in a little bit and figured that they had a chance if he helped, so he might as well help. Yeah. Combination. Yes. They won't be looking for me at their kneecaps. So true, though. Yes. Very true. <laughs> this is not the last time he fights. Very true. Doesn't fare so well in his next one, if I recall. No. But there's fewer of them. Yeah. Fewer uh, uh, Stark to, uh, to fight. Um, he does, uh, let's hate on Tyrion a little bit more. He gets a little inappropriate. <laughs> Well, little pro pros talking about little fingers uh, boasting. Yeah. Well, nice. you, you know what? No, I mean, is it is it the smartest thing to uh, character to do is to character assassinate your the witness that's against you? <laughs> I know that's so funny. Yeah, you're totally right, Matt. I look at it just going, that's not nice. <laughs> There is logical reason for it. He's not just being a butthead. <laughs> well, he is being a butthead. He's being a total butthead. Oh, yeah, but, but not But he's, he's, he's being a butthead to his advantage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know. He, he he tells Catelyn that Littlefinger has been telling anyone who will listen that he, Littlefinger, took Catelyn's maidenhead. Yeah. And I mean, like, okay, Littlefinger, I'm sorry. Are you in high school? Like, calm down. Yeah, I know. That just That just makes... That just makes that whole uh, anything Littlefinger just that much worse, and makes that whole thing with Sansa that much more creepy. It, it really um, does. And and uh, you know it, it, it's it's very it's very jarring. Uh, but you know there's two sides to every coin. Because the one thing I did find very inappropriate was Tyrion saying to those sellswords, you know, uh, it, well, what was it? Bronn said, you know, well, you need a woman now. You just had the blood fight, you know. And he's like, well. It's, I don't think she'll let me. <laughs> you know. I goes, I'm willing if she is. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That was the most inappropriate thing that he did uh, in terms of who he is as a person. I think. You think it's out of character, or you think it was out of um, appropriate or it was inappropriate? Oh, I think it was inappropriate, and okay. I think it was out of character, and I think sometimes Tyrion is inappropriate. Yeah. Okay. But uh, but as far as him uh, revealing what Littlefinger's been saying, then that to me that was much more strategic than appropriate or inappropriate. Yeah, I agree. I think he was just trying to win over Braun. Maybe that could be the strategic aspect. Ah, good point. Good point. Because he has started working on them, uh, or at least he does. I think kind of start trying to take notes mentally of these, these people he's writing with. Um, he does start to convince Catelyn. I think we see that by the end. She's, um, she does say, I don't trust you no more than I did before. Mm-hmm. She does let him carry weapons, which could just be pragmatic, or it could be that she's starting to believe him. Um, well, if she's of, starting to believe him, then why continue to take him to the veil? I, I think I think it is totally pragmatic. Yeah, I think it's just the fact that she does not know how baddie Lysa is. Ah, 
if she, if I mean, if you were going to meet another Catelyn at the Vale, and you knew Blackfish was there, like if you're going there anyway, and you're on your way there, and you start to doubt what you've been going there for, like you just finish going there to get the information. Like, like how that was one of the things she was thinking at the crossroads was that if I could, I would go to the Vale and ask my sister what else she knows that she was too afraid to write in the letter. And now she has that opportunity to do that. So she still has a reason to go. True. Very true. Right. Clarify this whole mess. Clean this right up. Anything else? Not on my end. Kelly? Not really long notes, so it's hard to tell if I covered them. I think I'm good. I think I got them all. <laughs> all right. Good. Yeah, we've, we've got a lot of – actually, these four chapters were all really good because they did produce a lot of notes uh, from a re, read or rewatch perspective or um, from, you know, uh, just the fact that th- these four chapters are very engaging to me story-wise. Um, so I guess it's time that we rank these chapters in our order of preference, which is going to be really hard for me, so I'm going to – like bail out and let Kelly go first and do her order of reading preference. Thing <laughs> oh yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I the, the scene at the uh, the end at the inn. I think made me really like Alan. So the cat, so that Alan be first, and then Sansa had the tourney day one. So I appreciated that. And then you gotta go right into day two. You can't you can't go day yep. two day one. <laughs> got to go day one, day two. So then Eddard, and then Tyrion, he was a little impro-pro. He got, he got shoved to the end. <laughs> <here. laughs> That's funny. Of him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll laugh at him, but I shan't condone him. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, how about you, Stephanie? Well, I went with um, the tourney as well. Um, Sansa, number one. Uh, just because everything with the Hound and we get his backstory and we get Sansa. Oh, you we... secretly shipped Sansa and the Hound. I can tell. Ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Maybe I do subconsciously, and it's just coming out when I talk about it on the podcast. But I do love yeah. Sansa. So she's number one. And then, as Kelly said, you have to follow up day one with day two. So we have Ned next. Um, then I have Tyrion three. And Catelyn just... Like I've said, she usually kind of bums me out, so I let I, I let her be last. <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, mine, uh, I got to do a little time travel for mine since you guys are talking Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday thing. I got to go. I'm going Eddard first because I thought that there was so much meat in that chapter uh, to look at, especially when you take my point of view about berries. Um, but uh, so Eddard is my number one, uh, and then. For the emotional side of it, I'm going to go Sansa too, um, oh. and then uh, just for the emotional side of the Hound, not necessarily Sansa and the Hound, but just the right. Hound himself. Um, I'm then going to go Tyrion three, and then Catelyn four. So uh, with that, we have some feedback to get to. We're going to start off with an email from Adam, uh, who uh, I guess should says this, um, y'all were asking whether there has been another series running through a similar course of anticipation at Game of Thrones. This is about the Winds of Winter talk that we had last week. He says, the suggestion was Harry Potter, but something even closer would be Stephen King's Dark Tower series. 
King wrote the first book in 1982. The seventh book wasn't completed until until 2004. The fan base is massive, and it will grow even more now that HBO is developing a series. Sound familiar? (laughs) A few years after the release of a fourth book, King was struck by a vehicle while walking on the road around his home, or while walking on the road around his home. His injuries were so severe that he was lucky to survive. Because his recovery was so taxing, he announced at one point that he was going to retire from writing. Obviously concerned, but also wanting to know the protagonist's fate, letters poured into King asking how the story of the Dark Tower series would end. He was steadfast and didn't want to tarnish the story if he was to resume writing. Six years after the last book and four years after the accident, he published the fifth book and rewarded fans by completing books six and seven immediately within the next year. So, as a fan of both series, uh, <laughs> but as Kelly mentioned, it gives us gives all of us fans even more time to speculate and theorize, especially now as to which parts of the new season are going to be spoilers or show exclusive plot lines. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it. Thank you, Adam. Any guys, any thoughts on that? Oh, I'm reading yeah. the Stephen King oh, book right now. Yeah, I'm reading Ooh. that series right now. I'm on book three. Uh, that really now, good. I, I would hate oh, to wait for those. That's amazing. I can't believe. I know. Like, I did not start the Game of Thrones when it started, so I I don't have that. This is my first like long, long wait. So I really appreciate everyone who's done the from the beginning. Have had to wait for each one. Uh, thumb twiddle. Now, see, <laughs> I'm I've been on the Harry Potter bandwagon since the beginning. But the waits for those weren't very, weren't long because she had like she stuck to her strict publishing date of like every two years, so that wasn't like oh my gosh like it's never going to come out because she was she said okay the book's coming out then and it would come out then, so that wasn't too bad. But I also read a book series called Outlander by Diana Gabaldon, and it's historical fic- fiction and it has magic and time travel. And it's re- it's very fun and interesting, and the books are like a thousand pages each. Um, those she takes a little while to write those, and it just became a star- a series on stars. So now we're waiting for season two to start, and waiting for like the eighth or ninth book of the series. But that's not as bad as waiting for George. <laughs> I was going to say they've got lots of source material to work from with that, um, yeah. and. I don't know. Stars, I can't, I don't know uh, if they'll, they'll keep a series sustained that long. It would be interesting to see how the showrunners approach that. Or are they doing a, do you think they'll be doing uh, multiple books in a season? Well, you know, they're on, they, so they did split up the first season into two parts and they barely got through like the first half of the first book. Wow. Or maybe okay, a, so they got... a little bit, a little, probably a little more than halfway through the first book. So we're entering season two, and I'm pretty sure we're still in book one, unless they're kind of rearranging the order. But it seems like they're they're and they're thick, like huge, very laborious <laughs> books to read. There's a lot of detail. Um, 
But, yes, I mean, Stars is doing a pretty good job, and I know the author is working really closely, closely with them. I don't think she writes any episodes like George does, but they've, they've done well so far. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, uh, we do have another email from Sarvesh, and I think Kelly will really appreciate this one. It says, it was very nice to hear the crew back in action with the perfect blend of camaraderie, insight, and analysis. I truly enjoyed the discussion about the mysteries of ice. I grew up in Shiddai, India, and one of the historical landmark buildings there is the colonial building called, quote-unquote, the Ice House. It was built in the 1800s when the British occupied India and was used to store huge blocks of ice, apparently shipped all the way from North America. Shiddai is a city where the summer temperatures can average 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and the coldest it gets in the winter is 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So if they can store ice over there, I'm pretty sure that King's Landing can have its store of ice for the wealthy. There you go. What, what year was that? Um, the, the 1800s is when it was built. Is it, so I don't know how... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when they started doing the shipping on boats. And they, they did mention ice... Um, Lemonade or something in the Santa chapter. I just, I didn't want to ice open. summer wine or ice. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. didn't want to open that can of worms again. But I <laughs> now that it's been brought up, I'll acknowledge that. Still, not sure. Because this is like pre all of that stuff. So I would wonder if shipping method and ice house method is is really what George had in mind for these guys for having ice. Oh. But it's a real thing. This ice house thing, not just a Wikipedia story. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, this yeah. is winter. We know how they get ice in King's Landing. It was so important. <laughs> it was so important to me to figure that out. I don't know why. Aw, <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. And also, uh, Sarvesh has more on the sword ice, but we're going to save that for the spoiler section. I uh, also want to thank Liz uh, for an, the email regarding the Doctor Who podcast. And also, again, because I couldn't name all of the people who had sent emails about their concern about me leaving for a while. Um, I also have got a lot of emails this week thanking us for coming back, and I wanted to thank all of you folks uh, for doing so. We got about 10 or 15 emails for that. And that's going to do it for the non-spoiler section of this podcast. We will have a short spoiler section after the end music, and if you haven't read all of the books, then I would advise you to stay away from that. But for you television show people who are reading the books with us for the first time, Thank you so much for joining us. Next week we will have the chapters Aria 3, Edward 8, Catlin 6, and Edward 9. You can find the list of all of the weekly chapters at podcastwonderful.com and the Game of Thrones reread tab. I want to thank our special guests this week um, who will continue to be with us hopefully as often as possible uh, through the rest of the read in January um, and the first week of February. Uh, Stephanie, thanks again once uh, so much for coming and bailing us out and for your great thoughts. If people wanted Thank to talk to you, if people wanted to talk to you about a, a song of ice and fire, how might they reach you throughout the interwebs to be able to do so? On the interwebs, I am on Twitter at s m persephone. That's s m p e r s e p h o n e. And I love Excellent. to talk to people. <laughs> 
Excellent. I'm not going to uh I'm not going to try to spell that one. It's easy for it. It's become so secondhand for me to say at fit and trim. By the way, follow at bubba at fit and trim. F I T T E N T R I M. That's my contractual agreement even when he's not <laughs> on the podcast. Um <laughs> but uh also I want to again thank you Kelly so much for all of the great insight and conversation this week. How can people talk to you on the interwebs if they want to talk about a song of ice and fire? or the television show Game of Thrones? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter, Kelly Underfoot, and I think it's just, I don't tweet that much, but I do check it, so if you would send me like, a direct message or something, uh, I'll respond to that for sure, and the um, anything, if you ever want like a resource or something like that, I've got like a ton of those. If you are just doing your own research and you're looking for something involving like a spreadsheet or a calculation or a map or something like that, I, I I would love to help anybody out with that. I just thought of that today as I was reading for these. I was like, I use a lot of these. I wonder if other people have found these. I spent so much time looking them up. I'd love to share people with what I found. So. Oh, excellent. The accountant of of the Song of Ice and Fire series, <laughs> spreadsheets and all, is ready to share. <laughs> it's what I've done for the past couple of years, honestly. I've been accounting that type of stuff. So it, it fits good. It's a good fit. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, and here's Axel Foley to tell you how to contact me. Remember, spoiler section after the end of music. All right, uh, I want to continue uh, Sarvesh's email because he has a theory about some things that haven't really been addressed in the show a whole, uh, directly. Um, so I, I was kind of iffy about putting it in the main podcast. Um, here's the rest of Sarvesh's email. who says, I would like to add another angle on the mysteries of ice, the Stark Ancestral Blade. Valerian steel blades are priceless today in the world of Westeros, but would still have been expensive even when the Starks brought ice or bought ice a few hundred years ago. Why did they buy such a lame sword? Whoa. Okay, I just called ice lame, but hear me out. As Tywin Lannister puts it in the fourth season of GOT, the sword has too much Valerian steel. Ned never wields it in a battle because it is too cumbersome. In fact, when he goes to face the three king's guard at the Tower of Joy, he couldn't have expected a long, drawn-out fight because he only took seven companions. Even in that compressed format, he still doesn't use ice, even though a powerful sword would be a huge edge, pun intended, in such a short fight, especially considering the likelihood of Dawn being there. If you would expect ice would be a good way to narrow the gap between uh, gap and reach between Dawn and any other sword. While Sean Bean is an impressive-looking man, we are led to believe that Ned Stark is not super strong, since he was both shorter and an inferior swordsman to his brother Brandon. But even this super chivalrous Brandon Stark never wielded ice when he asked for Rhaegar to come out and, and die, or when he quote-unquote dueled Littlefinger. In fact, the Starks are never mentioned as being big and strong like the Baratheons or the Krakals. Given this analysis, why would a Stark ancestor acquire such a ridiculously useless sword at what I presume was an exorbitant price? Why not purchase a small but more useful sword like pretty much every other Valerian steel blade? Here is my pseudo-crackpot theory explaining what happened. The ancestral Stark blade, the original ice, is actually Dawn. It is a two-handed greatsword that is milky white in color 
and if such a blade were to be found in the north, it would probably be called ice. I believe the original ice is dawn, and it was also light bringer during the, per, the previous long night. And the sword of the morning is a legend that is based on the last hero, who might have been a Dane that took ice to Starfall. When the Starks wanted a new blade made, they copied the dimensions of the sword they, wanted, they once possessed. This would provide a rationale as to why Ned returned Dawn since he saw a blade that was a perfectly, perfect replica of the Valerian blade ice that his family had always possessed and wanted to check out what the deal was behind the similarity. Finally, this brings things back to the current state of the Game of Thrones reread. Why did Ned bring such a useless ceremonial sword to King's Landing when he would not be performing any ceremonies? Hmm. Well, see, I always thought that uh, ice was simply used for execution. It was ceremonial, but, uh, you know, because the Starks are so weak, I mean, come on, Bubba from the South Korea <laughs> podcast would tell you, the Starks are just weaklings. They need a sword with a huge sword with a fine edge to be able to chop off heads. Rob couldn't chop off heads very well without his sword, uh, without ice. And, uh, of course, um, it, it seems that uh, we know that Theon couldn't chop off a sword uh, without ice. You know, that whole Stark family, um, even, even the Fosters, like Theon, they're all just a bunch of weaklings, and so they need a sword like ice because it's the only way they can do that, beheading stuff. Yeah, and like uh, Ned said, is that the, even though Robert uses a headsman, the Stark's way is the old way. So if he did ever have to sit on the throne, as he did, and um, condemn someone to death, he would probably do the execution himself and not use Ellen and want to use ice. Yep. That's the only answer I have to the rest of that. <laughs> and because he, that's because he has a, a, he's such a weakling. That's why he needs ice. <laughs> now, what about the thought here that uh, actually... The ice that the Starks now uh, have is actually the sword of the morning, the, the one that would make the Azor High legend complete, and that uh, uh, Dawn is a, uh, a, a or the uh, the sword that he returned, I guess, back to um, the tower or after the Tower of Joy um, was, I guess, a replica. Is that what he's saying? I don't know. I've never heard anything close to this theory before. It, it was interesting. Yeah. I thought so too. Dawn, Dawn is, like, the history of it's lost to legend, but the um, origins, and it seems to be kind of understood that this sword has been in the family for thousands of years, which is unusual. Right. Um, the name Ice has been in the family, for, for the Stark family, for thousands of years, but the... This sword is only thought to be at like 400 years old when it was forged in Valyria with uh, spell-woven Valyrian steel. Ah, so that's what he's saying. He's saying Ned's got one that looks just like Dawn because Dawn at one time was in possession. Um, right. Yeah, somewhere down the line, the original ice, the name ice, was, which I'm guessing is the, from the theory, is that um, Dawn was previously called ice and it was this... this Legendary sword, like we have these legendary heroes, this legendary sword used by a legendary legendary hero, um, but then it went from being in the north and 
to being in the ownership of the Dane family. Uh, and then when that split, like I'm guessing 400 years ago, let's say maybe the uh, Starks got a Valerian steel sword and called that ice and let Dawn be taken south, maybe to expand on theory, to keep it safe, maybe further away from the enemy, the dark darkness, the white walkers, all that. Where does mm. Lightbringer? How does it become Lightbringer? Well, it'd have to be thrust through some sort of Nisa Nisa, maybe, <laughs> or I symbolically, guess. maybe. The only difference between a normal sword and a and a special legendary hero sword uh, is that is the story that goes along with it. Mhm. Mhm. Um. All right. Um. Well, guys, we're we're running long here, so I'm going to try and go through any spoiler points uh, pretty quickly. I got two points on Catelyn, uh, Marillion, the singer. Um, this is the same singer that ends up, because he goes to the Vale, he's the one that ends up um, in the court of, of Lysa. Um, he also nearly ends up raping Sansa, if not deterred by someone I can't, who I can't remember who. Um, and I, this was the first introduction of him was in this group of chapters. Um, and uh, He's, of course, the one that gets blamed uh, by Littlefinger for killing Lysa, right? Oh, yeah. Right. And we feel so bad for him that he broke his fingers here. And yet, what, things don't get any better for Merlion. <laughs> <laughs> he loses an eye and his tongue or something like that. He loses both his eyes yeah. and his something like that, I think. Or maybe he yeah, keeps his tongue so he can sing. Yeah. So he had his eyes out. Oh, yeah. It gets worse for Merlion. Also, there's this Masha uh, Heddle character, and, and of course, the end of the crossroads. Um, she uh, she ends up uh, not doing so well later on in this book because uh, of Tywin um, taking revenge oh. on letting Tyrion take her take yeah. getting taken away. Uh, but the the end seemingly stays in the family, right? It passes to a, a nephew, um, and then to the nephew's daughters, Jane and, and Willow, who, of course, we meet um, have been associated with the Brotherhood Without Banners by the time that Brienne runs across them. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. And uh, it just seems like typical Lannister vendetta that she didn't have anything to do with Tyrion getting kidnapped and she got hung for it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where you can see Tyrion taking all these names down uh, you were talking about earlier with, with uh, it, it, while he may not have gone to quite the extremes, um, it's easy to see where he gets it from because Tywin doesn't uh, pick any bones. No. Yeah, it's all about maintaining the the illusion or appearance of power, and this is what happens if you are so unfortunate to be present, I guess, when something bad happens to a minister. Right. Do we have anything else on the Catelyn spoilers? No, those were good. I didn't have anything for that one. Except for Tyrion. Yeah. No, actually, nothing yet. Stephanie? <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, moving on to Sansa. I, I know, Kelly, you wanted to talk a little bit about Balin Swan. Is that right? Yeah. His, yep. His, uh, he's, because I looked up, like, most of these names, because there's just, like, a dump truck full of names that, uh, <laughs> yeah. who, who is important in this? Who dies? Um, one interesting character that is, absolutely never heard again is um, Theo Frey. <laughs> this could either be a typo because he's not in any of the appendices 
for any of the frays. So it's kind of thought that he was supposed to be Cleo's fray, maybe, but right. this is the only time he's ever mentioned. But all the other ones are mentioned. A couple of them end up in Renly's Rainbow Guard. The um, Bryce, Bryce Karen of the Marches ends up being the orange. Bryce the orange. Um, Robar Royce ends up being the Robar the red in the Rainbow Guard. Those are a couple of the guys that were in the uh, in the jousting tourney part. And then, yeah, Balance One, he ends up being replacing one of the King's Guard. And then, because he died at the uh, riot flea bottom, it's Preston Greenfield. Um, I don't know if he did anything before that, but so he becomes a King's Guard. And then he ends up going down to Dorne looking for um, Marcella. And he's got this plot that Cersei's trying to get him to kill the. Uh, I don't know, some Dornish, and there's a bit of spoiler stuff going on there, but I just feel like he finds out that Marcella's been maimed, she's been um, injured, and they say that um, it was uh, Gerald Dane, who's speaking of the Danes, he's uh, has, they blame him for that, which he did do, but then they also blame him for killing Eris Ocart, who's the one that Ario Hota killed, and now Balen Swan is on this mission to catch Gerald Dane, and I'm just wondering if his archery will come into play. <laughs> ah, good point. Good point. That's where he's at, and he's still alive. And a couple of these people are still alive. Not all of them. <laughs> so not a lot going on for for these characters. Um, Hor- Horace and Hober are mentioned. The Red Wine twins, who uh, fall in love with Marjorie, and then they get accused of being one of her lovers, but then at the end of dance, they're excused, they're um, uh, announced innocent. Right. One of the frays, Jared Frey, is in a fray pie. We, we, we <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all of the frays that apparently were at the end of the crossroads made it to the tourney because there's all these frays. Hostine frays here. He ends up commanding the fray forces at uh, Winterfell under Roose Bolton. Um, there's a bunch of frays. But most of them are not super important. Um, and anything else in regards to spoilers for for Sansa or Eddard? No. Did you have anything, Kelly? Uh, I did mention the Barristan teaching Arya about uh, swords and stuff. He does end up doing that. It's her grandfather, and so teaching some kids um, in dance with uh, Marine. He ends up kind of teaching some boys to be nice in, uh, underneath so, so that uh, Danny can have real knights under her. It's kind of the first mention of him doing that, and it's kind of cute. <laughs> Excellent. R.I.P. Um, Only in the show. He's still, he's still kicking in the book. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't, okay. Think I don't think he's, I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> I don't think he's going to make it in the uh, in the books either. I think he's going to go down in the bat. But this is kind of a cool legacy for him to leave, you know, introducing the Westerosi night night training to these messes. Um, yes, because when Danny comes back to Marine with a bunch of Dothraki, uh, there's nothing like uh, <laughs> nothing like uh, uh, having a bunch of guys who actually know how to use swords now to try and kill you too. Well, Jorah did all right. As a, a with with Westerosi um, armor and training and stuff, you might be able to. Mm-hmm. Maybe that'll. Maybe it'll be beneficial. I'm just saying. Could be. 
Now, uh, in terms of uh, the the Eddard chapter, I, I did want to say, you know, we, we said we couldn't go any further with what Illyrio and Barry's plan was. In the television show, of course, it's uh, Varys wants to put Daenerys on the throne, seemingly. Um, but in the right. books, it's something totally different. It's uh, this uh, this baby whose head was smashed that Nedder <laughs> thinks about um, turns out to be, according to Varys, still alive and is uh, the popular uh, is it Aegon or Fagon debate, um, and that. Still, even from a book or a television show perspective, I still maintain that Barry's is lying to Ned in this chapter for this very reason. Yeah, I think I kind of settled and I kind of like the the idea that he's lying to him in the long run. How right. you know he's being useful in Ned's short term vision. Like he doesn't Ned doesn't know the big game plan, but he does know this these immediate events that are happening and he's helping him solve those, but it doesn't realize that he's maybe helping him instigate more that will benefit Varys' long-term plan. I like it. I want to have it both ways. I want to have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ned also um, knows about Edric Storm and uh, it, it, this is the first allusion to Maya Stone. Yeah. yeah, I had Edric Storm in my notes and yeah, I think that was uh, Maya the, Stone. The, the, the daughter in the veil. Yep. Yeah, and uh, Courtney Penrose, who's amazing. He's an amazing character. He mentions the uh, where Edric Storm is being fostered at Storm's End with the uh, Castellan there. Right. Yeah, so we'll meet them later. Kind of a sad omission from the show, but I understand why they did it, and they did it pretty elegantly by using Gen- Gendry. But sad. Yeah. yeah. They just kind of combined. They made injury every bastard <laughs> right. that wasn't that wasn't a baby or, or or a young kid that was killed in King's Landing. Yeah, with a lot of shoes after that, which is fine. But we have it in the book, and we can cherish that. Any other spoilers? Got them all. I don't help me. Wow, we're done. Did it? It's done. All right, Stephanie, say your Twitter. S.M. Persephone, P-E-R-S-E, phone. That's how you spell it. <laughs> P-E-R-S-E, phone. Kelly, mm-hmm. say your Twitter name and spell it just so Bubba can laugh. Don't laugh at me. I'm very sensitive. Uh, Kelly Underfoot, K-E-L-L-Y-U-N-D-R-F-O-O-T. All right, good. And uh, I'm at Winterfell Pod. That's Winter, Fell, and Pod. <laughs> I spell Pod. P-O-D. Nailed it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.